Hello there and welcome to MMA Fight Club. I'm your host, Manuel Galarza. Today we're breaking down the full card for UFC 270, Cyril Gaon vs. Francis Ngannou, coming up on Saturday, the 22nd of January, at the 6 p.m. Eastern start time. This event's being held in Anaheim, California, in front of a live crowd pay-per-view event, the first pay-per-view event of the year for UFC. It's going to be 13 total matches on the bout, two title bouts. The co-main event's going to be Brandon Moreno versus Figueroa in a trilogy, the third time they're going to fight in the last two years. And of course, the main event's going to be a title bout in the heavyweight division between Ngannou and Gaon. We'll go over each fight one fight at a time, give you our favorite picks to win. We'll start off the prelim, work our way all through the main card. Here we go. First fight in the card is going to be a welterweight bout between the American Pete Rodriguez versus Jack Della Maddalena from Australia. Maddalena's 10-2 overall, coming off of Dana White contender series where he won by split decision. He's 5-0 in his last five fights. He opened at a minus 300 favorite. Now he's minus 200, so he dropped down quite a bit. He's from Perth, Western Australia, 25 years old, 5'11 in height with 73-inch reach. He trains at a small gym in Perth, Australia. Pete Rodriguez, who goes by dead game, 4-0, undefeated fighter. First UFC fight, did not fight in Dana White contender series, which is going to be his first full look at the UFC. Currently plus 165 on the main line. Again, he opened at a plus 240. It shifted by a full 100 to plus 165. He hails out of Arizona, 25 years old. These guys are both young. 5'9 in height, so 2 inches shorter and 73 inch, same reach as his opponent. He's at a dominant MMA. Looking here at the public votes on Tapology, it appears that Madalena is getting a lot of the votes here. About 90% of the votes coming in are for Madalena, only 10% of the votes coming for Rodriguez. It makes sense from the standpoint that Jack Madalena has fought some better competition, has a little more experience, obviously about double the experience, and he's coming off of Dana White Contender Series, so people know him a little bit more. We don't have striking numbers here on Rodriguez, because again, it's his first UFC fight. For Madalena, in that first UFC fight, or Dana White Contender Series fight that he fought, he landed 7.2 strikes per minute, very busy, absorbed 4.27, so very good ratio. He fought Angelusa. Pretty good prospect. So Jack's landing zero takedowns per 15 minutes, and he has a 75% takedown defense. In this fight here against Rodriguez, Rodriguez probably will prefer to keep the fight in the feet. He likes to box. He likes to, you know, use his hands, but he will work on the ground. Not sure he'll initiate a takedown. I believe Jack Della Maddalena has a big advantage on the ground. I'm sure Pete Rodriguez knows that. Will look to keep the fight on the feet and try to win the fight via boxing. Jack Maddalena, as we mentioned, from Australia, former pro rugby player, moved from rugby to UFC, kind of like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Volkanowski. Volkanowski used to be a pro rugby player. Let's hope that Jack Della Maddalena can have the same type of success. He uses a wrestling approach. So he wants to grapple, wants to wrestle, does some boxing, not great at boxing, but amazing grappling game. He displayed that against Lusa. At one point, I didn't want to contend his fight against Lusa. He's almost choked out. Most people would have tapped. He fights it, gets out of it, continues to grapple, continues to transition. So the guy's tough, knows how to grapple, can fend off some submissions. He's 1-0 as an amateur. He fought for XFC, Eternal FC, and Cage Warriors before coming to UFC. He won by a split decision in Dana White Contender Series. So it was a barely a win, a tough fight. He's a little lucky he got a contract. He went pro 2016, so he's been a pro for about six years. He went 0-2 to start his pro career and got finished in both those fights. After that happens, he turns and tells his coach in the locker room after the second loss, I'm going to go on a winning streak. I'm going to win every fight. I'm going to make it to the UFC. He's done that. He's on a 10-fight winning streak, and now the guy is in the UFC. Talk about like projecting his success. Even though he fell on his face his first two fights, a win to start. Excellent cardio, high pressure and pace. Reminds me a little bit of Marab Dvashvili, where he doesn't have amazing boxing, but the pace and pressure is nonstop. He's got a southpaw stance, which is always something that the fighters have to adjust to. Very tight guard. You notice his guard is very tight and very high. I mean, he's open to body shots, but headshots, he does a really good job of protecting his, his head and his face. If you want to watch the fight in Dana White Contender Series, that link's in the description. He fought off an impressive choke there from Lusa. I mentioned it before, but it was it was a deep choke, and Lusa's a strong guy. One of the big questions I have on Jack Della Maddalena is what happens when he gets pushed by another good fighter. He hasn't fought the best competition. 
Lusa, his Dana White contender series opponent, was his toughest competition, and he hasn't been in the first round in a long time. Now, as for Pete Rodriguez, 7-2 as an amateur, he's on a four-fight winning streak with four straight finishes. He fought for Icon Promotion, decent promotion out in Arizona. This will be his first UFC fight. Pete Rodriguez is replacing Worley Alves. So Alves was supposed to fight Madalena initially, so Pete comes in as a replacement, and he didn't have a lot of time to prepare for this fight. He is an explosive fighter, good hands, knockout power, no question. He's a very active fighter. He's fought six fights in the last three years, fought twice last year, twice 2020, and twice 2019. A very aggressive fighter that pushes the pace will get in the face of his opponent. Now, both guys are aggressive. They both want to push pace. Something's going to give here. These guys are not going to avoid each other. At some point, the hands are going to start flying, and somebody's going to get hurt. Now, the concerns I have on Pete Rodriguez, he just hasn't faced tough competition. The combined record of his last four opponents is 10, I'm sorry, eight and 11. Okay. He just has not fought high level guys. He lost in 2019. That was as an amateur rear naked choke round one iron boy MMA promotions to a guy named Lyles. At the time that guy Lyles was two and oh, that guy's now four and oh, hasn't fought in two years, three years. So didn't love that loss as an amateur, not a big deal, but Jack Della Montalana has a pretty good submission game. If the, if the fight gets to the ground where I think Jack wants it to be, that's where Pete might be, be in some trouble. Now, both of his career losses for Pete Rodriguez, not good level opponents. And that's something that concerned me. He looks good when he's fighting against those cans, but the two losses he has, both as amateurs against Christopher Lanes and Terry Lyles, these are guys that don't even fight anymore. Not very high level. Yes, it was a while ago, a few years ago, but still kind of a red flag for me here on Pete Rodriguez. And the reality is this will be by far the biggest test for both fighters. I think even more so for Pete Rodriguez. I think Jack Della Maddalena showed he could hang by beating Angelusa in his last fight. Experience-wise, I give the edge to Jack. IQ-wise, I give an edge to Jack. Cardio-wise, these guys are very similar. I'm going to be curious to see what happens, though, in round three. If it gets to that point, these guys tend to be finishers. If they can kind of meet toe-to-toe -to -toe and push each other, the one with the better cardio is probably going to win the later part of the fight. And that may, de may determine the fight as well. Finishing ability, they both have decent finishing ability, but this is higher level. we got to see what happens here. I think Pete Rodriguez is a better finisher on paper. But you know how these guys go. They have a bunch of finishes in regional scene, come to the UFC, next to you know, decision, right? Boxing-wise... They both have weapons. I think Pete Rodriguez is a better overall technical boxer. Jack De La Maddalena, former rugby player, a little more of a wrestler or grappler. And when we talk about the grappling area, that's where I think Maddalena has the significant advantage. That and experience-wise, he came into the UFC off of winning from Data White Contender Series. He didn't come in from a last-minute phone call like Pete Rodriguez is getting, where he's never been in the UFC, never went to Contender Series. So there should be an advantage there for Jack De La Maddalena. The money line is a lot better now. At minus 300, that was a little too chalky. At minus 200... It makes sense, but I'm willing to hear people tell me about how they think Pete Rodriguez can come in here and possibly lay the thunder on Jack De La Maddalena. He's got good hands. He has finishing ability. This will be an interesting first card in the prelims. Not sure exactly how I'm going to wager on it. Of course, I'll probably put Jack De La Maddalena in my lottery parlay, but I'm not sure how I'm going to bet it specifically. Not sure of any props that'll be attractive to me. I'm curious. What do you guys think? Let me know. Give me some feedback here. This is going to be an interesting fight where we're going to know a lot more about both fighters after the fight. Let's hope it goes toe-to-toe. Split decision, very close down to the wire, and we get to see both the best side of both fighters. That's my breakdown, guys, for this. Good luck with this fight. Next up, we got a featherweight bat at 145 pounds between Charles Air Jordan from Canada and Ilya Tapura, who goes by El Matador from Georgia. El Matador is 11-0, undefeated fighter. He's 25 years old, 5'7 height, 69-inch reach. He's out of MMA Masters. As for Charles Air Jordan, he's 12-4-1 overall, 2-2-1 his last five fights. He hails from Quebec, Canada, 26 years old, 5'9-69 inch reach. He's out of Academia Pro Star MMA, which is an excellent gym up in Canada. Now, for Ilya Tapuria, he was born in Germany to two parents that are from Georgia, but then in his teenage years, he moved 
moved to Spain. So that's why you see in his profile description there in Tapology, he says he's from Spain. He's technically a Georgian. He reps Georgia. And now he's training at MMA Masters. Looking at these guys on Tapology, more votes are coming in for Taporia. 94% to be exact. Only 6% of the votes are coming in for Jordan. I agree. I like Taporia to win the fight. I think the wrestling advantage is going to be significant. It's going to be very hard for Jordan to overcome that. Looking at their numbers side by side, striking numbers first. Taporia is landing 2.77 strikes per minute, absorbing 1.92. Decent ratio. As for Jordan, a little more volume, right? 5.7 strikes per minute he's, he's dishing out and absorbing 4.57. Both guys are on the positive side of their striking output versus their input. Now take that offense. Here's where things get a little bit different. Taporia is landing 3.35 takedowns per 15 minutes or more or less just about three and a quarter takedowns per 15 minute or three round fight. Whereas Charles Jordan is landing zero takedowns per 15 minutes, has not executed a single takedown yet in the UFC. Takedown defense for Taporia, 100%. Defense for Jordan, 48%. So you have to imagine at some point in this fight, if Ilya Taporia is trying to win, you know, via some type of, you know, just normal strategy, he's going to look to take the fight to the ground, right? You would imagine that. Let's talk about Taporia first. So again, we mentioned he's kind of all over the world, right? Born in Germany, two parents from Georgia. At the age of 15, he begins mixed martial arts training at Clement Club in Spain. And at that point kind of takes off from there. He's a former MFE featherweight champion. No amateur experience. He made his pro debut in 2015. His most notable wins were against Yusuf Zalal, excuse me, 2020 by decision, and against Ryan Hall this past year. I want to note that fight because if you watch that fight, listen to the, the commentator, look into the broadcast, I'm not going to mention any names. But my gosh, it is so annoying when the commentators are like all over one fighter's nuts. Like they were all over Ryan Hall's nuts. I'm not going to say all of them were, but kind of all of them were and it was like again and again oh ryan hall is so amazing and he's he's so awkward and his style is so unique and, and you know and, and, and oh no Ilya tapur is in trouble like at, at several points they're saying how Ilya tapur is in trouble mind you it's a first round tko win by Itapuria, who he pretty much knocks out hall hall has to like be woken up like hey are you okay buddy Watch that fight. The link's in the description. He dominates Hall. What does that mean? It just means he beats up a guy who hasn't been in the octagon for like two, three years. They were saying the broadcast, oh, no one wants to fight Hall. He's just so awkward. Uh, Taporia was very happy to fight him and whoop his ass. Those are his two biggest wins. Now, the positive I like on Ilya Taporia, he's coming off back-to-back first-round KO wins in the UFC. He's got a high finish rate. So he's finished eight of his last nine fights, including two of his first three fights in the UFC. His wrestling... Excellent. Averaging just over three and a quarter takedowns per three-round fight. Now, some people thought again against Ryan Hall. Oh, unique fight or whatever. Tapuria smashed all that. Khabib style. He smashed him, brought him to the ground, won the fight on the ground. Everyone was like, oh, no, Ryan Hall's so dangerous on the ground. So once again, not, not to beat up a dead horse, but he kicked Ryan Hall's ass on the ground. If he is able to take this fight to the ground, which I believe he would, the numbers support that, he probably kicks Jordan's ass on the ground too, right? Now, my concerns here on Tapuria. He has only faced medium-level competition. I'm talking about Ryan Hall. I'm talking about Yusuf Lazal. Zalal. Those are his two biggest wins. So he hasn't really been tested. And he's undefeated. We don't know what a fighter is about until they've really been had their back against the wall, until they've been hurt, they've been knocked down, all those different things. We haven't seen Ilya Tapori yet. Does he have a good chin? Don't really know. You don't know those things until someone's really been tested yet. For example, look at Qatar. Qatar versus Chikaze. That fight just took, took off this past weekend. In that fight, you see Qatar go toe-to-toe with Chikaze for five rounds. Qatar can take a lot of punishment. Is anyone surprised? No. Now, the thing that we learned was that Chikaze's got a chin, too. 
that motherfucker got a chin. Like, he's got the same type of chin as, like, Gagey. We just don't know that yet about Tapuria. Now, as for Charles Jourdain, the Canadian fighter, he's got a brother who's also a mixed martial artist. Aided to as an amateur with five finishes in the, as an amateur. Went pro 2016. He is a southpaw. It's always a unique tra trait. He uses a traditional boxing stance. He does do some leg kicking, and he did beat up the leg, front leg of Andre Ewell when they fought in their last fight. But sometimes I feel like he gets away, with, he gets away from it. I'd rather him, like, stick more to the lower leg kicks. Throws in combination. I love that about Charles Jourdain. So combination, body to the head, leg kicks, puts it all together. Coming off of an exciting win last month against Ewell. He fought literally the 18th of December. So a month ago. The guy is very active. You like that. He's back here in the, in the cage again. It was a nice win over Ewell. He got so close to finishing the fight in the late second round and late third round. He's got a high finish rate. 11 of his last 12 wins have been by finish, and he just about finished that fight against Ewell. He packs some power in his hands. He is aggressive, pushes a forward pace, good lower leg kick, which again, he displayed against Ewell. Fast hands. I believe his hands will be faster here in this fight against Taporia. So if there's combinations to be landed, he maybe gets an extra punch or two in those combinations. As we mentioned again, very active fighter. The guy's fought, what, several, three times in 2021 alone. High volume again, as we mentioned, landing 5.7 strikes per minute compared to 2.77 for Taporia. He's only lost one time as a pro via submission and one time as an amateur via, via submission. The numbers suggest that Jordan Jordan has got a chin. Okay, now my concerns are Jordan. His fat, his finishing ability doesn't necessarily come from one punch. So I'm just put, I'm being picky here. So it's more of like a wearing down a guy. He's not going to knock a guy out with one punch. I mean, can he kick somebody in the head? Maybe catch somebody? Yes. But in this fight here, does he one punch knock out Ilya Tapuria like a heavyweight? I don't see that happening. Zero takedowns for 15 minutes. I understand that takedowns and grappling and wrestling is not part of his game. But can he now defend against a guy who's going to look to do that early and often? Inconsistent win-loss rate. So looking at Jordan's tapology, Andre Yule last fight win. Prior fight, Arosa, loss. Prior fight before that, Rojo, win. Prior fight against Kulabo, decision split, draw, whatever. Prior fight, loss against Feely. Then he wins against Choi, loses against Green. He's been back and forth, win, loss, win, loss, draw since 2019. That's almost two, three years now at this point. Inconsistent in terms of winning. Hasn't put back-to-back -back wins together in a while. One more last thing here on Charles Jourdain. He gets off balance at times. That's just natural. He throws kicks, gets off balance, kind of falls down. If he does that, Look what happened to Sherman fight versus Collier. He throws a leg kick at Collier. Collier kind of catches it, a little sloppy. Sherman falls down, leads to the end of the fight. Could Jordan try to throw some kicks, any kind of kicks, get off balance, fall down, and then Taporia turns that into an easy takedown, back control position, even if not to, to a finish, but still getting tr control points, being on the ground. I see that happening as well because Jordan does get off balance. The fights we looked at here to break down this fight, we watched Taporia versus Hall, 2021. Tapuria versus Jackson, 2020. Jordan versus Ewell versus Arosa and Rojo. Those fights were all last year. Again, Jordan Jordan fought three fights last year against Andre Ewell, Charles Arosa, and Marcelo Rojo. Now, last thing here on these two fighters here, side-by-side -side comparisons. Experience-wise, I do give a slight edge to Jordan. He has fought technically six more fights. Seven more fights, excuse me. 12-4-1 versus 11-0. IQ-wise, I give a slight edge to Tapuria. Not because I think that Jordan's a dumb fighter or, 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 or Tapuria has shown like amazing, you know, Einstein moves in the octagon, but Tapuria is more balanced. He has a wrestling attack, has a grappling attack that Jordan does not have, and he has an 11-0 record. I think fighters who start off 11-0, 12-0, 13-0, 14-0, and have UFC wins, got to give him some credit. 
perfection, you know, it doesn't, it's not easy. Cardio-wise, I give Taporio an edge there because I've seen Jordan get slow at times in fights. I'm not sure if it's because he is tired or it's because he's just sort of getting a refresh, taking a break, or maybe he's worn down. But either way, Taporia, from what I've seen so far, seems to have a little bit of an edge in the cardio department. Finishing-wise, I respect both guys. I can listen to arguments on both sides on who's a better finisher, but they both have finishing ability. Boxing-wise, they both have their positives. Jordan may be more technically better, but Taporia may pack a little more, more heat in his in his, in his, in his uh, punching. Maybe if I'm breaking down just numbers alone, yeah, Jordan's got a slight edge in boxing, just a higher output. Now, grappling-wise, here's where the biggest disadvantage is again. Taporia as a grappler, when this fight ends by some type of submission, no one's going to be shocked or some kind of ground and pound from Taporia because, again, he has the ground and pound advantage. He has the wrestling advantage. He's got it in his pedigree. It's in his background. Whereas Charles Jordan, God bless the guy from Canada, my, my northern Canadian brother here, good striker, amazing striker, but if the fight gets to the ground, those are going to be tough situations for, for Jordan. I don't see him getting out of it. And at the very least here, I think Tapuri at minus 550 in the money line gets a decision here easily at some point, but probably ends up finishing the fight. That minus 550, though, is scary. I will parlay it in some stuff, but ultimately you can't bet it straight up at minus 550. And I wouldn't recommend doing that because it is still an MMA fight. Could Charles Jordan just clip Tapuri at some point, catch him coming in, catch him with a knee when Tapuri is going for a takedown? Charles Jordan's a tough mofo. Canadian brother. I like Tapuri to, to win the fight. I'm confident he'll win the fight. But a betting betting wise is not much you could do here. Put it into a few parlays. Don't over parlay it. Don't crash all your parlays. But I like Tapuri to, to win the fight. And most likely it happens here round two, round three by some type of submission or ground and pound by Tapuri, just overwhelming Jordan. And Jordan doing the best he can to fight him off, just eventually succumbs to it. So that's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. fight the car is going to be a women's bout between the American Vanessa Dimopoulos and the Argentinian fighter Silvana Gomez Juarez. Juarez goes by La Malvada. She's 10-3 overall, 3-2 in her last five fights. 37 years old, 5-3 in height, 63-inch reach. She trains out of Entrum Gym, very good gym in South America. As for Vanessa Dimopoulos, who goes by Little Monster, she's 6-4 overall, 2-3 in her last five fights. She's out of Los Angeles, California, 33 years old, 5-2 in height, 62-inch reach. She's out of Fight Ready MMA. So both fighters are coming out of very good gyms. A slight reach and height advantage there for Juarez. Now, looking at the public vote here on Tapology, Juarez is the favorite, getting almost 70% of the votes here on Tapology. Now, look, this is a tough fight to call, and I don't want to just pass on it. I have to choose something for you guys and give you a pick, right? I'm going to pick Vanessa Dimopoulos, but oof, not a lot of confidence. I see a lot of holes in her game, and there's some, definitely some holes in Silvana's game. Now, Silvana is a replacement. Not a last-minute replacement, but initially this fight was supposed to be with someone else for Vanessa. We'll talk more about that. Vanessa's landing 3.13 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.67. Not a good ratio. She's basically absorbing an, another punch and a half compared to what she's dish, dishing out. For Savannah Juarez, she's averaging 0.71 strikes per minute. You got that right. Less than one strike per minute. She's absorbing 2.6. Maybe one of the worst ratios I've ever seen. For takedown offense, neither fighter is very active there. Both of them are averaging zero takedowns per 15 minutes. Takedown defense, Juarez 16% and Dempolis 32%. Now you can see what I'm talking about. These two fighters, for lack of better words, are very, 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 very low level MMA women's fighters. To put money in this fight would be the epitome of gambling. I don't see a side that you can side with for sure. On the money line, it's minus 110, both sides. This is gambling. Flip a coin, pick a side. I'm going to give you some more details here to break down this fight, but I'm telling you right now, stay away from this one. This one's this one's like destined for an ugly split decision where you're just hoping you had the right side. Demar Papas, her dad was a big part of her training. She was younger. You know, he's biggest fan, supporter. Unfortunately, he passed away two years ago. She talked about it in interviews, how it's a big part of her motivation to fight, you know, in memory of her father, who was her biggest fan. She's 5-2 and two in LFA prior to joining UFC. She lost on Dana White Contender Series in 2020 to Corey McKenna. 0-1 in the UFC so far. She got KO'd in an amateur bout against Caitlin Chukagan. 
not bad. It's Caitlyn Chukagan, but she did get Caleb by her an amateur bout. She won via TKO over Cheyenne Vlismus. Cheyenne Bays. Yeah, she beat Cheyenne Bays 2017 as an amateur. The one caveat was it was uh, an injury. So actually, Cheyenne Bays got injured in that fight. But still, good win there for Vanessa. Her biggest wins of her career, Sam Hughes, 2020, via submission in round four. And that's a current UFC fighter, Sam Hughes, even though she's like 0-3 in the UFC. But still, she beat her by submission in round four. And Cheyenne Vlismus, Cheyenne Bays, as we mentioned, TKO victory 2017 an amateur fight. Now her pros, the things I like a lot about Vanessa, high finish rate. She's finished 50% of the wins that she's, she's accomplished. LFA experience, good competition over her young career. So young fighter, 10 total fights, not young in terms of age, 33 years old. She's you know approaching her prime years in terms of age, but only 10 total fights. She's fought some good competition. Quality losses. She lost against Lupita Godinez, 2020 via decision in LFA. She lost to Corey McKenna via decision, 2020 LFA. She lost to J.J. Allrich via decision in 2021 UFC. And then she lost to Caitlin Chukagan in 2013 via TKO as a, in round three as an amateur. She's been in there with UFC caliber fighters. There's no question. I think when she gets in there with UFC caliber fighters, we tend to see the deficiencies in her in her fighting game. But still, she's shared the cage with some better fighters than Silvana. The concerns I have for Vanessa, she's two and four in her last six fights. Grappling, MMA included, right? So she's not winning very much right now. She has a hard time against higher level competition. Only 10 total fights, but the four losses are against fighters that just a little bump up. Now, as for Silvana Juarez, she is the late replacement. This fight was supposed to be initially between Vanessa and Ashley Yoder. That's right. Now, Ashley Yoder had an injury, so she had to pull out. And so here comes Silvana Juarez. Not a last-minute replacement, but still, nonetheless, a replacement fighter. Now, Juarez, we mentioned, is from Argentina. She's 1-0 Invicta, 0-1 in KSW. She lost her UFC debut in 2007-2021 versus Lupita Godinez. Got armbarred in round what was that? Round one, round two. Let me just double check. I don't want to misspeak on that one. She got arm barred in round one. Yeah. And uh, not a great look. <laughs> you know, UFC debut, not, not a great look. Silvana Juarez, to me, at 37 years old, is like, ugh, we're approaching the time of expiration date. I don't love that. I don't love the fact that she got completely manhandled by Godinez in her UFC debut. Now, from one side of it, that was the good version of Godinez. Good for Godinez. That she should be doing that against lower level fighters. She's a good fighter. But she hasn't been doing that, Godinez. And so she goes up against Juarez, and she's like, oh, manhandles her. And it's like, oh, there's Godinez. Well, that's because maybe Juarez is lower level. I don't know how this fight goes. I just have no clue how this works out. I guess it goes a distance. Women's bout. Look at that prop. That's probably a prop you want to consider. But who wins this fight? I just have no idea. This is probably going to be a slow-paced fight. We don't have any finishing power either fighter. I like Vanessa to win the fight. I have no reason to believe that. But that's my gut. So that's a breakdown, guys. Come on. Up again, a bantamweight bout between the Brazilian veteran Ronnie Barcelos and Victor Henry, the newcomer here to the UFC. Victor Henry goes by La Mangosta. La Mangosta translates to the mongoose in Spanish. Henry is 21 and 5 overall, 4 1 in his last five fights. He hails from Los Angeles, California. 34 years old, so making his UFC debut a little bit later than most fighters, but nonetheless, it's better late than never, right? He's 5'7 in height. We have no reach number on him, but I would guesstimate based upon watching his film, his reach is comparable to that of Ronnie Barcelo, so about 67 to 68 inches is what I would imagine for Victor Henry. He trains out of UWF USA. As for Barcelos, he's 16 and 2 overall, 4 1 in his last five fights. Born and raised in Rio de Janeiro, he's 34 years old, 5'7 in height with a 67 inch reach. He trains out of Rizzo RVT. According to Tapology, Barcelos is getting a lot of the vote. Almost 90% of the tier coming in for Barcelos. So 91, 92%. No love here for the American Henry. I do think Barcelos wins the fight. I do think he's the more superior fighter right now. 
But when you look at Victor Henry's tapology, there's some names that come up, some people he's beaten that you're like, whoa, UFC level guys. So we'll talk about it. Now, according to the striking numbers here in both fighters, we don't have striking numbers on Victor Henry because it's his first UFC fight. As for Barcelos, he's landing 5.39 strike per minute, absorbing 4.36, landing 1.79 takedowns per 15 minutes, and defending his takedowns at a 92% rate. Good takedown defense. In my opinion, he's not active enough with wrestling. I mean, it's averaging just under two takedowns for 15 minutes, which is okay. But he's a very good wrestler. doesn't seem to use it enough, at least for my liking. Let's talk here a little bit more about these fighters in detail. First off, let's start with Ronnie Barcelos. He was born and raised in Rio de Janeiro. He started grappling and wrestling at the age of five. Reason being is that his dad was actually a very good freestyle wrestler. His dad got him into it. He was an amazing amateur wrestler. So like amateur meaning like probably I would equate that like to college here in the United States, like going up to like 18, 19, 20 years old, five time Brazilian national wrestling champion, two times South American, all of South America wrestling champion. So wrestling wise, very good. But when you watch him fight, it's frustrating. He doesn't use his wrestling enough, at least not for my liking. I wish he would use it more. He started his pro career in 2012 in Shudo, Brazil. Notable opponents for him, Khalid Tadha, Tamir Valiev, and Saeed Nurmagomedov. Not big time names for Ronnie Barcelos. He's still definitely climbing his way up the ladder at 34. It's like now or never. I'd say his toughest opponent to date was probably Tamir Valiev, the fight that he just lost, which we'll talk a little bit about that as a close, close fight. One judge actually had it as a draw. But anyway, the point is, those are his most notable opponents he's fought against. Some positives on Ronnie Barcelos on his fighting game and what he brings to the table. He's fought solid competition, five UFC fights so far, and an ultimate fighting fight. Um, quality losses. His last loss against Valiev, listen, that was a tough loss. One judge actually thought it was a draw. It was close. Uh, all three judges actually had him winning round two. And one judge had him winning round two, 10-8. He, he like messed up Valiev in round two. He knocked him down clean twice in round two. And the ref was just about to step in there and, and stop the fight. So it was a very quality loss from the standpoint that here's a guy who's 18-2 and two in Valiev, who's 3-0 and oh in his first U, three UFC fights, you know, brings a lot to the table. You know, bottom line is it's not the worst loss. Quick striker and combination puncher. One thing about this guy, you could not tell by watching him fight that he's a former wrestler. His striking technique is beautiful, and it comes in combinations. It works straight down the pipe, no looping nonsense, whatever the case may be. So I like his boxing, very good, very good on his feet. He pushes the pace and controls the center of the cage. That's consistent with all his fights. So I do like that about him. Now, with a fighter like Henry, Henry will try to push pace sometimes, but I think he won't be able to do that against someone like Barcelos, who really owns the center of the octagon. He's only been stopped one time in his entire career, and it was via a rear naked choke. So he's never been knocked out. Now, some of the concerns that I have with Barcelos, his boxing defense in the fight versus Valiev, one of the reasons why he loses that fight on the scorecards is because when he's trading with, with Valiev, he leaves himself too open. I'd like to see him shore up his boxing defense, just meaning like not defense from the standpoint of getting hurt, but just his guard, not get hit, hit so much and so cleanly when he's in his trading situations. Just have to increase his, his, his defense. That's all I would say. He just doesn't wrestle enough. Here's a guy who's a South American, you know, multi-champ and Brazilian national champ, whatever the case may be, wrestle more. Wrestle to take over the round. Wrestle to win the round. If it's a close round, wrestle. So I want to see him do more of that. He could be a little more active to my liking. You know, I'd like to see Barcelos be a little more active. And the fact that he's getting older, he should be more active, right? The expiration date is coming up soon. A low finish rate, and at least recently, recently. He's had some finishes before in his career. But his last three fights have all gone to decision. He was a minus 225 favorite against Valia of his last fight. He lost that fight by decision. He was also a minus 435 favorite against Taha the fight before that. And he won by decision, which is not comfortable, right? A minus 435 favorite suggests he should be finishing the fight. On to Victor Henry from California. He fought in Ryzen. Actually, was like 2-0 or 3-0 in Ryzen. Some nice wins. He is the former LXF 
champion, which is a, a belt that he won two months ago, October. He won that belt, so I guess he had to surrender that belt since now he's in the UFC. His most notable opponents to date. This is where it gets a little bit weird now. He fought Kyler Phillips, like 9-2 and two Kyler Phillips, who's in the UFC, and he won that fight by split decision in CXF 15 back in 2018, so just three years ago. Like, consider this. Another thing about this fight. This fight was after Kyler Phillips had already won on Data White's Contender Series. So, like, the year before this fight occurred, Kyler Phillips wins on Dana White Contender Series, first round finish. He ends up, for some reason, I don't know why, not fighting right away in UFC. But the point is, Kyler goes back to this promotion, CXF, faces off here against Alex Henry, and loses by split decision. Okay? Now, Kyler Phillips only has one of the loss in his entire career, and that was by decision to rally on Paeva. So, if you look at the situation there, Kyler Phillips is a UFC fighter. He has two losses in his entire career. One's against another UFC guy, and then against this guy, Alex Henry, right? Did I say Alex Henry? Victor Henry. Another win on his tapology, Anderson Dos Santos. So say what you want about Dos Santos, who's 21-9 overall, so not the greatest of records, but it was a round two TKO, and that was also just three years ago, 2018. So 2018 was a big year there for Victor Henry. He got two nice wins that now have aged very well against two guys that are in the UFC, mind you. I mean, just hearing that and processing that information, that at least tells me that this guy, Victor Henry, is definitely UFC capable, right? He's UFC caliber. This call-up maybe was, you know, in the waiting. His opportunity finally came. And yes, it's a last-minute call-up, but it's not a guy who's off the street of bum who's not UFC caliber. I think he actually is UFC caliber. Now, how good is he? Is he going to be good enough to beat Ronnie Barcelos? I don't think so. But just, just get the idea out of your mind that this guy's just some guy off the street who hasn't fought UFC-level guys. He's got wins over UFC-level people. Now, some positives that I like here about Victor Henry's game. He's a very active fighter. He's actually fought 12 times in the last three years. This will be his second fight this year. He fought twice in 2020. He's got a pretty good kicking game. So body kicks, leg kicks, he's active. He'll throw some front, front kicks. He mixes up his kicks a lot, which I do like. Six submission wins, so he's got some submission ability. Quality loss against Denis Laratenev. I'm probably killing that name. Latenev is 12-2 overall. That was his last loss, and that was actually a rematch. He had beat Denis uh, Laratenev before, but then he lost his rematch by decision. He's never been finished. Okay, so all four of his losses were actually by decision, and two of those were by split decision, so maybe he could actually only have two losses instead of four, you know, depending on how things shook out. He's got a pretty good finish rate. He's got four straight wins that are all by finish, so pretty good finisher. Now, that stands to test... We'll see how that works in the UFC. That's been outside the UFC. So four straight finishes in a row outside the UFC. Some concerns about his game. Low-level competition, okay? So, for example, his last two opponents, their records that he's beaten, the last two wins he has, those opponents' records are 10-8-1 and 28-14-5. and um, His first UFC fight, that's tough, right? Here's the bright lights. It's, it is at least the UFC, uh, the Vegas, right? It's not like the full-on crowd and the whole nine. So he should be at least a little bit more calmer than it would be if it was a full crowd. But... With that said, it's still the first UFC fight. I'd say at 34 years old, maybe he's more mature than maybe some of the younger guys, so hopefully that helps him a little bit. Um, and in the recent interviews, he suggested, listen, I'm ready, man. I can't remember his exact quote, but his, his exact quote was something like along the lines of like something that uh, Diaz would say. Like Nate Diaz would say something like, fighters are over, always ready. I'm always ready. I'm always prepared. You know, So that was sort of the way he attacked this fight coming in late notice. He's like, I'm always ready, man. Um, he's very hittable in his exchanges, which is a really big concern for me in this fight because Ronnie Barcelos throws nasty, quick, hard combinations. Now, Barcelos has not had any finishes in a while. This could get him back into the finish column here, especially if Victor Henry stands in front of Barcelos and tries to trade with him. He's very hittable, Victor Henry, that is. I saw him get a hit a lot in prior fights. His last fight against Morales, he won that fight. He wore Morales down, but Morales was landing a lot of punches on him, clean punches, and Victor was just sort of eating it. 
can't do that with an elite level striker like Barcelos who will hurt him, you know, so I don't like that part of his game. Now, the films that we watched these two fighters to break down this film, we watched, we watched Victor Henry versus Kyler Phillips in 2018, Henry versus Morales in 2021, Barcelos versus Valiev in 2021, and Barcelos versus Taha. Those four links are in the description to watch those films if you want to watch them yourself. In terms of their side-by-side -side breakdown for experience, I give Ronnie Barcelos the experience edge, even though Victor Henry's fought more fights, 26 total fights compared to 18 for Barcelos. Barcelos has obviously fought more UFC fights and a little bit tougher opponents. Fighter IQ, I also give an edge there to Barcelos because again, he's fought some tougher opponents. Not that I think Victor is a dumb fighter, it's just a matter of this is his first UFC fight. There's only so much information you can collect from him watching or watching him fight regional scene type of level fighters. Cardio wise, I do give an edge to Barcelos. I've seen him in round three in the UFC. I've seen how he's able to function, grapple and wrestle. In the limited film that I've watched on Victor Henry, he seems to slow down quite a bit. You know, round two, there's definitely a, a, a big dip in his output. Um, so I do see that to be a problem. If this fight does go to deeper waters, round three, I think Barcelos is going to be a lot sharper, his punches, his combinations. Um, he's going to look like the sharper fighter, the healthier, you know, the more energetic fighter, I believe, later the fight goes. So in terms of finishing ability, I give these guys both about the same rating. Now, the reason being is, again, Barcelos is dangerous. I mean, he's got some submission ability, got amazing wrestling ability, as we talked about. He's got power in his hands, but he hasn't had any finishes recently. Victor Henry has got four finishes in a row of the four, four wins that he's had, the last four wins, but that's been, again, outside the UFC. So don't know where we're at here finishing-wise. Do I see a finishing happen, finish happening here? I could see Barcelos overwhelming him. I could see that happening, but I also could very well see it go in the distance. Boxing-wise, I give an edge to Barcelos. I think he's much cleaner, much sharper, throws combinations. Victor Henry gets a little sloppy, especially when his cardio starts to slip, whereas Barcelos, even when he's getting more fatigued or tired, he's still striking with clean, you know, clean accuracy. For grappling, give a strong edge to Barcelos. The wrestling, the grappling background's there. I wish he would use it more, but he's definitely a better wrestler or grappler than Victor Henry. He's got some submissions. He's no slouch on, 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 when it comes to jiu-jitsu. Barcelos has only been submitted one time in his career. Now, it was a long time ago, I think like 2014 or something like that, seven years ago. Do I see Henry submitting a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy who's from Brazil? It seems a little bit awkward. That that prop would probably be amazing. I don't have a lot of confidence at Barcel in Barcelos at minus 335. I think that number is a little scary, and it could blow up in your face. If Victor Henry comes out here and squeezes out one round, gets the fight to the later rounds, I could see him making this a little ugly. The guy is, look, he's a bit of a veteran coming in the first UFC fight, but he's kind of a veteran. He's beaten other guys that are in the UFC. It wouldn't be shocking to me if he wins this fight. How am I going to bet on this fight? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I would put Ronnie Barcelos into my parlay, my lottery parlay, but in a parlay in general, he's going to be a low ticket part of that parlay. I can't have him as a top ticket you know, piece in that parlay because I don't have a lot of confidence. He should win the fight. Every which way he's better here than Victor Henry. But I say, but. Victor Henry's a little bit of a, a little bit of a wild card. He is his first UFC fight. Could he come out round one, just come crazy out there, push the pace, make Ronnie Barcelos uncomfortable, and just win round one? And then things just change mentally. Everything just changes now because now Barcelos comes to the corner. He's like, oh, I dropped round one. I don't know. But, you know, I'm, I guess I'm thinking outside the box. If you're looking at a prop bet here, then the fight goes over one and a half. That's a prop bet I would look at. The fight goes to decision. It kind of feels like it should. You feel like it's going to be like an ugly match or it's going to go to decision. Probably that prop bet would be good to look at. I'm not sure. This fight is going to be one of the toughest ones for me to figure out. I want to say dogger pass for Victor Henry because you could sort of see this coming. But Ronnie Barcelos is just a superior boxer. He's going to be able to land more punches. He should land the cleaner punches. And if Victor Henry does not shore up his stand-up defense, he might even clip. That's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe.
Next up, we have a women's flyweight battle at 125 pounds between the Canadian fighter Jasmine Jasso-Devicious and the American Kay Hansen. Kay Hansen 7-4 overall, 4-1 in her last five fights. A big favorite here at minus 55 on the money line. She's from Fullerton, California, 22 years old, 5'2 in height, the 63-inch reach. She's out of 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu Puerto Park. As for Jasmine, 6-1 overall, plus 205 on the money line. She's from St. Catharines, Ontario, 32 years old, 5'7 in height, with a 68-inch reach. She trains out of Niagara Top Team. Looking at the numbers coming in here on Tapology, looks like Hansen is the favorite, getting 65% of the votes, 35% of the votes coming in for Jasmine Jasso-Devicious. A tough fight for me to break down. I found myself leaning both ways at many different times. I do think it's a path to victory for both fighters, so I don't want to make it as if I'm very clear either way how I feel. This should be a very close fight. Looking at the striking numbers, Jasmine's landing 4.67 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.33 per minute. Not great numbers. Nice output, but you don't like the fact that she's pretty much absorbing the same amount that she's dishing out. It's the same situation for Kate Hansen. Kate Hansen's landing 3.57 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.03. Once again, striking numbers for them are okay. You like the volume. You just don't like the fact that their defense is not showing a good disparity between their output versus their input. Now, for takedown offense, Jasmine's landing four takedowns for 15 minutes. Kate Hansen's landing 2.19 takedowns for 15 minutes. I, I'm not sure which fighter will look to take the fight to the ground sooner. Though when you look at Jasmine's recent fight in Dana White Contender Series, she did take the fight to the ground early and often. So I would imagine Kate Hansen with 100% takedown defense, that's going to be tested. Jasmine's 4-0 as an amateur, two finishes, two decisions. She fought in CFFC prior to UFC. She won a decision over Julia Palastri in Dana White Contender Series last year. That was how she got herself into uh, now this opportunity with her first fight in the UFC. Her most notable fight, she fought Elise Reed. And I want to bring this up. Now, Elise Reed from New Jersey, not too far from where I'm based out of, decent fighter. She fought Sajara Eubanks last year. She was a replacement. And she got run over. Like, she got completely manhandled by Sajara Eubanks. When I saw that on her tapology that she lost to Elise Reed, I was like, oh, that's not great. I watched the fight, and I mean, all I can say is that Jasmine... Probably should be able to beat someone of Elise Reed's, you know, potential or her caliber. The things I like about Jasmine, she changes levels. She's not going to just give you a straight boxing look. Even though she has the reach here, she will look for body locks. She will look to mix it up. She looks to wrestle. She's very good on the ground. Her height and reach is going to be a big advantage here. How much will she use it? Because if she tries to wrestle, then the fight goes into the wheelhouse of Kate Hansen, right? You would think that's in her... What she wants to do. Kate, Kate will have to close the distance at some point to make this a fight. She can't just stand on the outside and take those punches. Now, my concerns here on Jasmine, low finish rate, three straight decisions. It's her first UFC fight. And again, she lost to Elise Reed. Kay Hansen grew up with a single mom, few sisters. Her father and her mother then reunite when she's like a seven years old, very young. Then at 16 years old, they separate again. She goes and then lives now with her father after growing up with her mother. So kind of an up and down childhood. She talked about having a toxic relationship with her father. Not sure what that all means, but she's a rough rider. She's had it rough growing up. She was doing softball. That was her main sport when she was younger. And then she saw Ronda Rousey fight and she was like, I like that MMA stuff. I want to get into that. She turned her attention to MMA and she got going right away. This young lady fought at 18 years old in Invicta, her first fight in Invicta, and she won her debut. She fought her first UFC fight at 20 years old, and she won that fight too against Jin Yu Fry. In my estimation, I feel like she's fought the much better competition, the higher level competition compared to Jasmine. Kay Hansen's a PJJ purple belt. Her most notable wins were against Jin Yu Fry, 2020 via arm triangle. Helen Peralta, when I saw that name, I was like, Helen Peralta? She finished Helen Peralta? See, this is where it's tough for me to go against Kay Hansen. 
She grounded and pounded round three finish of Helen Peralta. Now, I watched that fight closely. Maybe the finish and the way the referee came in there was a little premature. But was she dominating Helen Peralta? Was she kicking her ass? Absolutely. Helen Peralta is legit. That's a tough fighter. And Kay Hans had put hands on her. Now, Erin Blanchfield, she lost to her. But that was a majority decision also back in Invicta. So when you look at Jin Yu Fry, Helen Peralta, Erin Blanchfield, there is no one on the resume of Jasmine Jessica Vicious who lines up with that kind of experience. And that's why I do like Kay Hansen in this fight. Experience alone, and she's only 22, making big improvements. Kay Hansen's a very good wrestler. In the fight against Jin Yu Fry, she loses round one. In round two, she comes out and says, you know what? I'm going to take control of the fight, bring Jin Yu Fry to the ground, take top control, and hold her down the entire round. Now think about it. Jin Yu Fry is built very strong. That's not an easy task. Kay Hansen just made it happen, took her to the ground, went to her wheelhouse. She has good conditioning, very durable. She's only been finished one time in her career, 2018. A good finish rate, especially at this weight class. She's finished six of her seven wins. She's been a finishing machine. Kay Hansen is a tough girl. She's also got a solid submission game. She had the nice comeback win against Jin Yu Fry, where not only did she come back, use her grappling and wrestling, but she then got a finish by an armbar over a very strong fighter in Jin Yu Fry. Strong meaning that Jin Yu Fry is built very strong. My concerns like Kay Hansen only 22 years old, did not fight at all in 2021. She had a fight lined up with Vlissimus. Fortunately, that fight did not happen. She had to pull out. At times when Kay Hansen gets tired, her striking definitely wanes. Um, in the fight, especially when she lost against Schwartz, she just gets so tired where it's just like she's flailing, just walking forward, not much behind her strikes. That's when she's fatigued. Uh, when she's on her feet and she's fresh, I'm not sure it's much better, but when she gets fatigued, her striking definitely takes a dip. She hasn't won a fight in almost two years. Kay Hansen's also coming off of a loss. She lost her last MMA fight against Corey McKenna. One of the fights we reviewed was Kaylin Schwartz and her fighting in 2018. That fight's in the description. That link's available to watch that if you'd like to take a glance. In that fight, she gets completely mollywhopped. Not only does she get thrown around and out-wrestled, but she gets cracked in the face, gets cut very bad on the side, like over here. The blood is gushing everywhere. It's a bloody mess. She gets finished, TKO'd, and just gets completely, you know, outworked. Uh, that was a wake-up call. She was young there, I think maybe 19 years old when that happened, 18, 19 years old. But um, it showed a chick in the armor. I think she's improved since that point, but that film showed me a lot. And one thing it showed me was that she cuts. She's a bleeder. Against also Jin Yu Fry, she beat Jin Yu Fry, but she was bleeding like a stuffed pig in that fight too. Some people are bleeders, like Nate Diaz, for example, a bleeder. My concern, though, is there's already a lot of scar tissue on this young lady's face. She's only 22, bleeding. I mean, she bleeds a lot. If the fight gets close, she gets cut, she's bleeding. If they're on the ground where Jasmine wants to be anyway, Jasmine's got sharp elbows, very tall fighter. You know, I can see some cuts opening up. This could become a factor in the fight. The fights we watched to break down this film, we watched Kay Hansen versus Kaylin Schwartz, Kay Hansen versus Jin Yu Fry, Kay Hansen versus Kellen, Helen Peralta, for Jasmine, we watch Jasmine versus Pulaski, Jasmine versus Golfin, and Jasmine versus O'Haren. All these fight links are in the description. You can watch those fights on your own. I would encourage you to watch them. This is going to be a very close fight. I've already heard some cappers out there that are on the side of Jasmine. I've heard cappers on the side of Kay Hansen. I'm not going to be short either way, and I'm not going to put too much money either way. I'll include these guys into the lottery parlay, of course, and at some point I'll have to choose a side and pick someone to win. The big lesson from 2021 that we've learned, experience is a factor. Kay Hansen has the Invicta experience, UFC experience. She's been with some tough fighters. She's beat some tough fighters. I think that is going to be a factor. Does Jasmine's length, is that does that neutralize that? The reach, the height, 
maybe you know Jasmine looked really good in her her Dana White contender series fight. She looked good. She you know she wrestled. She got in the ground for a tall fighter. She showed you know her wide range of ability. The kryptonite for Kay Hansen's going to be the bleeding. I think she's going to have to stay away from sharp elbows, not getting cut up. Don't let that be a factor. Keep the fight close. Keep it in range. Wrestle, grapple. She'll have to out wrestle Jasmine to get the win here. She's not going to outbox her from range, and I believe Jasmine will also look to get in the clinch. Now for Jasmine, Jessica Vicious. Her head movement's not amazing. When she slows down and gets tired, her head's there to be hit. Could Kay Hansen getting close? Could she land some strikes? Again, not really a big part of Kay Hansen's game, but we'll see who's got the better cardio. Looking at them side by side, the last few comparisons. Experience-wise, Kay Hansen gets the edge there. IQ-wise, again, I'm giving the edge to Kay Hansen. At 22 years old, she's making big, big you know, improvements. Um, she's fought some better opponents. For cardio, I've seen them both get a little tired, but I say they'd have average cardio. It's a three-round fight. The cardio should not be a big factor. Finishing ability, I give an edge there to Kay Hansen. Again, six of her seven wins have been by finish. She's a roughneck. If the fight gets on the ground, she's going to be rough. Elbows, striking, she's going to push a heavy pace. I imagine she's the one pushing forward here most of the fight, where Jasmine's circling, using her distance to try to create an advantage. At some point, the fight gets into a clinch, body lock. And at that point, we see who's stronger. Kay Hansen is coming up a weight class. It should be noted. I think her more natural weight class is lower, so she's going to be fighting now up a weight class and a much taller fighter. Those dynamics should play a role. I think the fight's pretty close. The money line doesn't really reflect that with Kay Hansen being minus 55. I think that's because she's the popular boxer, American boxer. She's more well-known. She's young, up and coming. This should be more like minus 175 for Kay Hansen, you know, not minus 55, but it is what it is. With that said, I still like Kay Hansen to win. The boxing category, I do give an advantage for Jasmine. Jasmine also does have good just overall kickboxing, good range, better fluid kickboxing than Kay Hansen. I mentioned before how Kay Hansen, especially when, he gets when she gets tired, her technique is not the best. Now, for grappling, that's where the fight is going to be won or lost. Who's the better grappler? When you're breaking down this fight and you're asking yourself the final question, who's the better grappler? That's going to decide who wins. This fight, even though it's a women's fight, has a likelihood of not going the distance. I can see the bleeding of Kay Hansen becoming a factor. She gets cut. The fight gets called TKO. Or I can see Kay Hansen on top of Jasmine, overwhelming Jasmine. Jasmine's like, holy shit. I've got a monkey on my, on my head, on my shoulders. I've got a real UFC fighter. I've never fought this level before and gets overwhelmed, gets finished. Jasmine's not going to quit. She's a tough fighter. But if the fight gets ugly, which is what Kay Hansen wants, I'm definitely doubling down on Kay Hansen. You know, my only concerns with Kay Hansen, it's the bleeding. If she gets cut and it's ugly, could the fight be stopped? For Jasmine, this will be the biggest test of her career by far. I don't think it's the biggest test for Kay Hansen. I think Kay Hansen has fought better competition. She's been there with some other fighters that are very notable. She's held her own. She's always been able to go, you know, the distance, except for the fight against Schwartz, where in that fight, I think it just was not her night. She got busted up. She learned from that. She was very young. At 22, she did not fight at all in 2021. I believe she comes back here motivated, stronger, waving the American flag. We have a North American fight between two great fighters it's going to be a it's going to be a battle i'm going to slide with Kay hansen in terms of a betting perspective i'm going to parlay her with a few small parlays nothing too crazy i don't feel comfortable betting, betting this fight straight up i understand plus 205 why jasmine jasmine vicious is very very attractive i also liked her at some point during this breakdown i think she has a path to victory keep it at a distance use your length use your you know use your legs when it gets in close, I think she might even be equal with Kay Hansen strength-wise. I don't think that Kay Hansen's like a lot stronger than Jasmine. They're both good in the clinch. If Jasmine gets two underhooks and gets a body lock on Kay Hansen, she's going to sweep her and take her down. And if she gets on top of Kay Hansen, we'll see what's up. That's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight.
Next up, we have a bantamweight bout at 135 pounds between the American Tony Gravely and Simone Oliver from Brazil. Now, for Oliver, this will be his UFC debut coming off of Dana White Contender Series. He's 18-3 overall, 5 in his last 5 fights, currently plus 195 on the money line, 30 years old, 5'6 in height with 69 inch, I'm sorry, 67 inch reach. He's out of Astra Fight Team. As for Tony Gravely, 21-7. He's 3-2 in his last 5 fights, currently minus 240 on the money line. He's out of Coconut Creek, Florida, where he trades out of American Top Team, 30 years old, so same age, 5'5 in height, 1 inch shorter than Simone Oliver. 69-inch reach, so a few inches reach advantage for Tony Gravely. As for looking at tapology numbers, the votes are coming in on the side of Gravely. 63% of the votes coming in for Gravely, 37% of the votes coming in for Oliver. I do like Gravely to win the fight. Biggest reason why I think he's going to win is because Simone Oliver is coming fresh off of Dana White Contender Series. We've seen these guys and girls coming off Dana White Contenders kind of struggle in their first UFC fight. This is a tough matchup for Simone Oliveira. Clearly, it'll be his hardest matchup of his career. For Tony Gravely, he's fought a few UFC fights. He has a little bit of experience. Should have the fighter IQ edge. Should have the ring experience edge. Now, looking at the numbers side by side for striking, Simone Oliveira is landing 3.13 strike per minute, absorbing 3.13, the same exact number. So, equal output versus input. As for Gravely, landing 4.14 strikes per minute, a little bit busier, and absorbing 3.27, so a better ratio for Gravely. For takedown offense, Gravely's landing 5.57 takedowns per 15 minutes. For Simone Oliveira, he landed three takedowns in his, in his Dana White Contender Series fight, so three takedowns over the course of a 15-minute fight. Takedown defense, Simone's got 100% takedown defense is what he had in that Dana White Contender Series fight, which that will be tested here against Tony Gravely, a former college wrestler. Gravely's got 50% takedown defense. So Simone Oliveira, like we mentioned, coming off of Dana White Contender Series, he won via split decision and got a contract off of that. This will be his first test, his biggest test, 30 years old. Not too old, not too young, but clearly if he wants to get going in his career, he's going to have to get going right now. The things I like about him, very good submissions. He's got five of his last seven wins by submission. Will he have opportunities against Tony Gravely? He should. Tony Gravely likes to wrestle. Okay, Tony Gravely is a former college wrestler, former two-time state champion in Virginia. Going to look to wrestle. His neck should be there. And if Simone Oliveira can scoop that neck up, he'll have an opportunity to try to get a submission. My second biggest concern with Simone Oliveira is all the fights that he fought prior to the UFC, he was finishing guys. He was finishing people left and right. He was just he was hammering these cans in Central America. Then he comes to Dana White Contender Series. What happens? He goes to a split decision win. Now he's upping the ante now even more, going and fighting an actual UFC fighter in Tony Gravely. I think Simone Oliveira, he may have a good future in UFC, but this is going to be a tough test. I think Tony Gravely is going to be outmatching him in a lot of areas. As for Tony Gravely, we mentioned the wrestling background. He did have a fight against Marab Deveshvili in 2016 that he lost by decision. Not a bad loss. Tony Gravely is also a product from Dana White Contender Series. The things I like about Tony Gravely, Excellent, excellent gym. He's on American top team in Florida. Great teammates, great coaching. Active fighter. He fought twice 2021, twice 2020. Solid wrestling. We talked about the wrestling background. College wrestling, multiple-time state champion. Now, though he lost to a TKO to Manis, okay, that's his last fight. Watch that film. The link's in the description. If you watch the fight, he just about wins the fight in round one. He completely clips Manis, but the bell saves Manis. The fight goes on to round two. In round two, they're exchanging. Tony Gravy's feeling fine. And he just gets caught with an uppercut, a perfect uppercut for Madness. He didn't see it coming. It just clipped him. He ends up getting TKO'd. No bad blood. Both fighters liked each other. I think it was a learning experience for, for Gravely. I think he learns from that. I don't. I think it's a flute knockout. I don't think he's got a chin issue. He comes back here, does a good job. Because, look, in another world, a few more seconds on that clock, that first round knock, knockdown of Madness, he gets to win. Madness was out of it. It was just simply the bell that saved him. He's got great cardio and pace. Gravely pushes the pace for all three rounds. He's going to look to wrestle. He will look to enforce that 5.57 takedowns for 15 minutes. I'm sure at some point he gets Oliver to the ground. 
Oliver is going to be challenged. Now, he does like to use submissions, has good BJJ skills. He will be challenged on the ground against a, just a traditional American wrestler. I think Tony Gravy's boxing skills have made huge improvements in leaps and bounds. I like to see that for a young a young wrestler who has a wrestling background. Usually the boxing is not great. He has shown, again, at a good gym, American top team, he's working on his strike, and there's been big improvements. My concern with Tony Gravely, he was a minus 200 favorite when he got knocked out against Manis in his last fight. You don't like to see people coming into fights as a minus favorite, two to fight, one favorite, and then getting knocked out. He doesn't use his wrestling enough in terms of my opinion. Now, when you look at the numbers, it says, well, hey, man, what do you mean? 5.5 and 7 takedowns per 15 minutes. I think there's times when he could use it even more. Um, he's just such a good wrestler. Use it to get your fight where you need to be at. Don't sit on the outside. Use it in, in distance. And so I think sometimes he could push the pace better when it comes to wrestling. He has been inconsistent lately. He's 2-2 two two in his last four fights. So hopefully he can get himself back in the win column. The last few stats I'm going to compare on the two fighters. Fighter experience, I'm giving the edge there to Gravely. Clearly he's fought some more fights, been in the UFC. Fighter IQ, again, I'm giving the experience advantage there to Gravely. For cardio, I'm going to give a, a same score to both fighters. I didn't see anything in that first fight with Simone Oliveira where he looked like he had a gas tank issue. And Tony Gravely has, seems to have very good cardio as well. So for right now, same grade for, the, for their cardio. As for finishing ability, I think, again, when you look at the past record of Simone Oliveira, there's a lot of finishes there. But that's regional scene, man. I think that Tony Gravy's got some hands. His hands are getting better. He almost knocked out Maness. I think he's got a little edge here in finishing ability at this level. Boxing-wise... They're pretty much even, though I see Gravely making big improvements. Grappling-wise, that's where this fight's going to be won or lost. They're both very evenly matched in certain areas, like in the grappling area. But there's also the chance that Gravely can show him the hands, man. Gravely's got good hands. And on the flip side, why can't Simone Oliveira, who's got a lot of submission wins in his background, what, five of his last seven wins have been by submission, why can't he submit Tony Gravely, who's going to give him his neck? Should be a good fight at minus 240. A little chalky there for Gravely, but I'm going to side with the American wrestler. I think the experience... Again, experience is going to be a big theme here in 2022. I think he's got the experience advantage over here over the up-and-coming new fighter coming off Dana White Contender Series. I like Tony Gravy to win the fight. Good luck with it. Next fight's going to be a lightweight battle at 155 pounds between the American Matt Frivola, who goes by Matt Steenrola Frivola, and Guinardo Valdez, the Mexican fighter who goes by El Rayadito. El Rayadito translates to the stripe in English. He's 10-0, undefeated fighter out of Tijuana, Mexico, 30 years old, 5'10 in height with 71-inch reach. He trains out of Antrim Gym, which is, of course, where Brandon Moreno trains out of. Now, Matt Frivola is 8-3-1 overall. 2-2-1 two, two in his last five fights. Currently, he's a favorite of the money line at minus 210. Valdez is plus 175 underdog. Now, Favola trains out of Tampa, Florida, where he works out of Gracie's Tampa South. He's 31 years old, 5'9 in height with 71-inch reach. So, same reach number for both fighters, one inch shorter there for Matt Favola. Looking here on topology, though, interestingly enough, Valdez is getting more of the votes here. 68% of the votes exactly coming in for Valdez, 30% of the votes coming in for Favola. This is a tough fight here. I think that Gennaro Valdez wins the fight, but ugh, there's a lot of ifs and ands about this fight. We're going to talk about it as we break it down. For Matt Favola, he's landing 2.73 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.49. Not a good ratio. Obviously, you don't want to be landing less than what you're absorbing, right? As for Gennaro Valdez, he's in the same boat, but the numbers are even more absorbent. He's landing 6.28 strikes per minute, so you're like, oh, great, great output, high volume, right? He's absorbing just under 10 strikes per minute. So his head is functioning as a, as a blocking shield, more or less, in the way that he fights. We'll talk more about it as we break down his past fights. Now, for takedown offense, Matt Favola is landing two and a half takedowns per 15 minutes. 
Guinaldo Valdez is landing a whopping 10.47 takedowns for 15 minutes. Now, those numbers are really conflated or inflated, however you want to look at it, because he's got only a short little window of, of fights that are looking at. I think only one fight in particular, that would be the fight Dana White contender series. Guinaldo Valdez is defending 0% of the takedowns against him, and Matt Favillo is defending 40%. So take those numbers for what you want to take before. Guinaldo Valdez is a wrestler, though. He is going to push pace, looks to wrestle. He'll throw like... A few shots, all of it just trying to set up a double leg takedown. Let's talk here about Matt Frivola first. So he had an 8-0 amateur record before he went pro. He's 2-3-1 in the UFC. That's notable. I've been talking a lot about the experience advantage, um, how important it is to keep it, you know, keep an eye on it for fights where you have a guy like Guinardo Valdez. Undefeated. Yeah, it looks beautiful. Coming in here undefeated off a of Dana White Contender Series. Mexican fighter. Definitely fights like a Mexican warrior. Has a chin. You know, goes forward the entire time. Tough guy. He chains, op, trains, obviously, with some tough Mexican fighters like Brandon Moreno. You've got a guy in Matt Favola. We'll talk about the holes in his game, but he does have six total UFC fights under his belt. This will be his seventh compared to Gennaro's coming in here in his first fight. Now, more about Favola. His last win was in 2019. Now, that wasn't technically three years ago exactly, but it was about two and a half years ago to be exact. A split decision win over Luis Pena. Now, Luis Pena, we can go on about that. Talented fighter. Uh, could have, would have, unfortunately, got into some trouble, domestic violence this past year, got arrested. I don't, even, I don't even think he's on the contract with UFC anymore. I believe they cut him after he got arrested. That was his last win. His also probably his biggest win of his career for Matt Frivola. Now, the things I like about Frivola in terms of how he fights, he's a balanced fighter. He's just as good on his feet as he is on the ground, or just as bad, however you want to put it. But he's, he's serviceable on the ground and on his feet. He got taken down by Armand. But he was able to get back to his feet pretty quickly. So each time he got taken down, he was able to work his way back to his feet. Armand's a very, very good wrestler. And of course, in this matchup, he's got the UFC experience edge. Now, my concerns with Frivola. Frivola might have some chin issues. You know, he's been finished twice via TKO in his last five fights. Specifically, now the fight where McKinney, he gets knocked out in that fight. That's the fastest knockout in, in lightweight history of the UFC. Seven-second knockout. He is also the fourth fastest knockout in all total UFC history. So that wasn't a great knockout. We're not sure. Does he have a chin or not? Was that a flash situation? The McKinney knockout is especially concerning. That links to the description if you want to watch that fight. He does leave his chin wide open. So like against Armand, he didn't get chin checked in that fight, but he does leave his chin open. He's willing to trade. It's almost like he doesn't have the awareness that he doesn't have a good chin. I don't know. You know, He's 0-2 in the last year. So basically, 2021 was not a good year for Matt Favola. He went 0-2. Now, as for Guinaldo Valdez, okay, so his background from Mexico, traditional boxing stance. This is his first UFC fight. He's coming off of Dana White contender series win last year where he got a finish. He, he fights like a tr true Mexican warrior. He goes forward. He owns the center of the cage. There's no backing up in his game. He's got a high finish rate. He's finished five straight fights, three TKOs and two subs, including the Dana White contender series you know, fight that he won. He throws in combinations and then he shoots. It's kind of predictable. So if you watch film on him, he'll throw some... Hard punches, an overhand right, a kick, whatever, too, and then immediately falls to a double leg takedown. Now, in his fight, Dana White Contenders fight, he tries to get a bunch of early takedowns, but he's not successful. So he's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to fight this guy like it's a brawl. And it turns into a, a really nasty fight right away. Like, it gets ugly. He gets cut up, okay? So Valdez gets cut up pretty early. He's like, I don't care about that. He keeps going forward. He keeps fighting. He gets chin-checked a bunch of times. Like a true Mexican. Warrior that he is, it just doesn't deter him at all. He keeps going forward, keeps pushing pace and pressure. The fighter he's fighting he just cannot take enough of it. Eventually succumbs to it. But the point is, in that first round, he immediately abandons the takedown offense. He's like, you know what? I can't get these takedowns. I'm getting tired. This guy's defending them. You know what I'm going to do? Plan B. Just fight like hell. Fight him till he wears out. And so there's like one gear 
It's like a one-gear Ferrari. Like, there's no slow, there's no medium, there's no, like, it's just one speed, six speed. He's going full force, rev it to the pedal, to the metal. Now, the problem with that is, if it doesn't work, he's going to completely gas himself out. He did look tired there at points at the end of the fight in a Dana White contention fight because he just blows his whole wad. I can't imagine what he would look like in round two or three. There probably is no round two or three for this guy. It's like, like I said, it's balls to the wall. It's right away. And from one standpoint, it's entertaining as hell because he's like, listen, I don't care what it takes. If I can't get this guy down, I'm just going to beat him up on the feet. So, you know, it's interesting to watch, but I can't imagine over the long haul, it's going to be the best technique. Now, he is in a good gym. He's got good teammates, got good fighters. Hopefully he's working on this. Now, maybe also Dana White Contender Series, he felt the pressure that I have to get a finish and I have to get a finish early in order to get this contract. He did show a good chin in that fight. He could definitely take a punch, typical of the Mexicans. Now, my concerns with him, he gets very off balance. So by the end of the first round of his Dana White Series fight, he was not only tired, he was very off balance, throwing wacky punches. He fights anyone who's got a decent gas tank, who can, you know, endure that first onslaught. They're going to take him down, get back control. He's going to be tired. He's going to be an easy, easy submission or an easy out in round two or three when he's just totally tired. I do like the warrior mentality, but when all else fails and it doesn't take much for him, if it doesn't work in the first like 30 seconds to a minute, he's like, that's it. I'm going. I'm fighting. That's it. We're just... But all, all out, you know, and it's, <laughs> you can't fight that way in the UFC. Obviously, these guys like Matt Favola, who's got some UFC experience, he's been in there with some guys, he'll be looking to slow the tempo, get himself into a rhythm, get to round two, get to round three. I have to imagine the people in Matt Favola's camp have talked about, let's be careful of the chin, let's not go out there and get into a, a war with this guy. We know Guinato's going to want a war. They know that. Now, if Matt Favola comes out there and says, hey, man, fuck it, I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to fight with this guy. I'm going to show this Mexican, you know, what I'm, what I'm made of. He's coming north of the border. He's on my land. We're going to fight. If that happens, Matt Favola is going to get clipped. <laughs> okay. Because even if he hits Gennaro with a brick, you know how these Mexicans are. It's going to take a cinder block and then a sledgehammer, everything to knock this guy out in terms of Gennaro. If it turns into a street fight, Favola is going to have a problem. I fear for Favola that no matter what he does here, at some point, the Mexican gets to him because this is guy that, you know, Remember Julio Cesar Chavez, the old boxer from Mexico? If you don't remember him, look up some old film. This guy would just corner people. Over the course of rounds, eventually people just could not run from him. He just couldn't do it. He just kept cornering you, cornering you. Get you into the corner, get you against the ropes, and just beat the hell out of your body. Eventually your arms come down, hit you in the head, he ends the fight. With Guinaldo Valdez, he's going to push such an ugly pace here that Mavrovola will have to like be running to escape the pressure. At some point, I imagine Guinaldo catches him with something, but Mavrovola has to prove to me right now that he's got a chin. This will be the test. <laughs> this will be the test to see if he, he has a chin. If he does have a chin, the McKinney thing was a fluke knockout, whatever. Okay, we move forward. He's only 31 years old. Favola's 8-3-1 overall. Hasn't fought a ton of fights. Hasn't fought a ton of wars. For striking... I think that Guinaldo Valdez has an advantage in terms of maybe the volume, right? The volume. But technique-wise, it's hard for me to say he's a better technical boxer. He loses his technique so fast. He gets wild. He gets out of control. I think he's got more power in his punches. Again, it's a think. I'm not sure. Matt Favola has never been a big power punch. From the boxing standpoint, I'm going to give a slight edge there to Valdez. The grappling... I'm going to give it an edge to Frivola. You know, he showed some good grappling against Armand, a very good, you know, good, good fighter, good wrestler. I think if the fight gets to the ground, he has an advantage. And if the fight gets to the ground and Valdez is tired, watch out for a submission from Frivola. That's, that's a prop to take a look at. In terms of cardio, I'm going to give an edge there to Frivola. 
just the way that Gennaro Valdez fights, I believe that he's got like this, you know, the, the internal clock there is broken. He doesn't have a clock. It's like, I have to win. I've got to win now. There is no second round. There is no tomorrow. That's the way he fights. Hopefully at some point he curbs that way of fighting because it's just not going to be long-term for him in a career like this. Exciting, yes, but he's got to find a way to pace himself a little bit. In terms of their IQ, I'm going to give an edge to Favola. Clearly he's fought some more UFC fights. He's been there with more guys. He's been around a little bit more at, the, at this level. They're 31-30 respectively, so only one year apart. But just the level of competition should be there. I'm going to give a slight experience advantage to Favola along with IQ advantage. When you look at it, there's a lot of reasons to favor Matt Favola. But man, I'm jaded by that knockout by McKinney. And it's not just that knockout, right? Because if you look at the last few fights for Favola, he lost his last two in a row, two fights in a row, McKinney and Armand Zakurian. Now, Zakurian just out-wrestled him. It wasn't like he got hurt in that fight. But Bolo, Bolo Reyes, back in 2018, he lost to him one minute first round, got knocked out. And Bolo Reyes, that was a guy who was in the UFC. He's no longer in the UFC. 10 and 8 overall, a 500 level fighter, and that guy knocked him out one minute in first round. So I have a sneaking suspicion. Not that sneaky. <laughs> I've laid it out for you. Pretty much everyone knows. You can go to his topology and see what you know, see what it is. I think Matt Favola may have a bit of a, of a chin. Now, does that mean you can't be a successful fighter? No, no. Don't don't misinterpret what I'm saying. Does it mean he's gonna lose this fight just because of that? No, no, no. Sugar Shame O'Malley, right? O'Malley. So he knows he has to watch the lower legs. He's had some injuries. He's gotten kicked in the legs. He's got some damage done. He can't sustain a bunch of lower leg kicks. He doesn't have the frame, the body to do that. Every fighter has their weaknesses and their strong points. For Matt Favola, hey, stay away from getting chin checked. Better head movement. You know, don't sit there and trade with this guy. Use wrestling. Use grappling. Ugly it up. Keep the game in your, in your, you know, in, in your arena where you want it. Don't stand at a distance and sit here and trade with a Mexican fighter who... Even if you land on him for Vola, this guy's going to take more than that. It's going to be very tough. It's going to be a war. You don't want to get into that with this guy. If there's a chin issue with Matt Favola, he can still succeed with that. He can still win this fight. I fear, though, he doesn't make that full adjustment over the course of 15 minutes, three rounds. Gennaro puts on a crazy pace. I shouldn't even... What, what am I saying three rounds? Within the first five minutes, I think Gennaro Valdez puts such a crazy pace on the first five minutes of the fight that the fight is more or less decided. Now, what that means is... Either he gasses himself out, even if the bell rings in round one, it's over, it goes to round two. He comes out round two, there's just nothing there. Or he gasses himself out in the end of round one, and Matt Favola whips up a rear naked choke and submits him. Or he puts the pressure on, you know, Favola and ends it with a TKO. Either way, I think this fight makes it to the whole distance. I think at some point something gives here a big test for Favola. I don't know why the money line's in favor of him the way it is. I think that's going to change. So if you do like uh, Favola right now, take your time and wait. That number's going to come down. If you like Yanito Valdez, Hit early and often. I'm going to take, dare I say, at least I'll take a half unit. I don't want to get too, you know, get too, uh, get too carried away here. But I do like Valdez. And this fight right here, I think it's a good matchup for him. Tough matchup for Provola. That's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Next up, we have a welterweight bout between the American Trevin Giles and Michael Morales from Ecuador. Now, Morales is coming off of Dana White's contender series this past fall, where he got a decision win over Varetnikov. And even though it was a decision win, it was still an impressive bout. 22-year-old prospect, very exciting. So Dana decided to sign him. Trevin Giles, who goes by the problem, is 14-3 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. He hails out again out of Houston, Texas, where he's a police officer. 29 years old, he's married, has a child. He's six foot high with a 74 inch reach. He trains out of War Training Center. As for Michael Morales, very young here at 22 years old, went pro actually at 18. So um, he's been fighting pro since, since he legally can, right? He's 12 and 0, so perfect record. 
out of Ecuador, now via Tijuana, Mexico, where he trains out of Entrim Gym with the likes of uh, Moreno and those guys down there. Very good gym. 22 years old, as we mentioned, six foot height, 79-inch reach. He's going to have a five-inch reach advantage. And notably, in the fight on Dana White Contender Series when he fought against uh, Varetnikov, he had a five-inch reach advantage in that fight, too. Looking at topology, the public vote is coming in on the side of Morales, but only slightly. 58% of the votes coming from Morales. 42% coming in for Giles. I guess I'm a little surprised. I would have thought there would be more love here for Morales because of recent Dana White contender series winning, whatever else. But I am going to side with Trevin Giles. Um, this was not an easy decision. This is going to be my solo dogger pass pick of the entire card. I'd like to reserve those for just one or two spots. Morales is landing 3.53 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.47. The absorbing 3.47 strikes, that's an issue. When you look at the Varedikov fight, he dished out a lot of blows, but he definitely lost round one. It was a little bit of a slow starter. Kind of well, he got his he got his output, I believe, doubled in round one. In round one, Vretnikov landed double the amount of shots that Morales landed. So that's just you know, just take that for what it is. Now for Trevin Giles, he's landing at just about the same 3.14 strikes per minute, but absorbing only 2.01. So better defense. Now for takedown offense, Michael Morales was a national champion in Ecuadorian wrestling, so he's got a hardcore wrestling background. He lands four takedowns per 15 minutes. In that one fight against Vretnikov, that Dana White continuous trace fight, he landed four total takedowns. He can get a takedown from a body lock. He's very athletic, very strong. Trevin Giles, you know, in the fight against Delita especially, he showed where sometimes the fighter IQ puts himself in bad positions. Delita did the same thing. So back and forth, these guys were making low IQ moves. But anyway, he's landing 1.27 takedowns per 15 minutes, and he's defending at a 75% rate. That's Trevin Giles. Now, for Morales, 100% takedown defense wasn't really tested that much by Retnikoff anyway. Will Giles test him? You know, Giles will go for a takedown here and there. Um, he's got an athletic background, played high school football. He's from Texas. He should be able to at least defend some of the work that Morales attempts against him. But again, over the course of three rounds, Morales looked pretty fresh in that third round against the, in his Dana White contender series fight, whereas Trevin Giles has a tendency to slow down a lot in the third round. He did it against Delita. It was noticeable. And so we'll see if he shores that up and it's any better in this fight. Michael Morales, like I mentioned before, he grew up in Ecuador, national champion Ecuador. Then at some point, late teens, leaves Ecuador to go to Tijuana, Mexico to begin training mixed martial arts there at Entrim. Earned his UFC contract this past fall by, by winning his fight by decision over Varetnikov. After that fight, I got to mention this. If you didn't watch it, the link's in the description, you watch it. His ear is as big as an ear can be. Now, I think pre-fight, he had a little bit of the cauliflower thing going, of course, a little puffy ear. By the time the fight was over, it was it was as big as an ear can get. And then post-fight, they had a, a, a clip on it, a clothing wire clip, like in the ghetto, hanging on the like, clothing wire. They had a clip like that with, uh, with like a paper towel. And he's just talking in the press conference. And I'm like, so ghetto, oh my God. In that debut, he looked pretty awesome. Amazing striking. You know, he looked all about it. Um, great prospect. I think that Dana White... Like the future potential, like I said before, when he's like, listen, 22 years old, so young, 12 and 0, likes that, because you could put that O up against a lot of guys. If he wins this fight, 13 and 0, like the stock goes up a little bit more, right? For Dana White and company, it's like, listen, get the guy in here now, forget about it, don't wait any longer. They could have sent him packing, get a decision win, right? It wasn't an amazing win. With that said, I feel like there's like a little hype behind him, and that suggests that if the fight's close, I think Morales does get the win. The biggest win of Morales' career was his last fight against Nikola Vretnikov. Before that, uh, regional cans, down in Central America, nothing impressive. He does have a five high finish rate before Dana White Contender Series. He had eight straight finishes in a row. Before that, like all of a sudden, that knockout power, that finishing power that you had against okay level fighters, it doesn't translate. And this reminds me, before the fight between Jake Collier and um, and Sherman, which just took, just took place last weekend, 
Collier did an interview where he said, listen, like before I got to the UFC, I was hitting guys with stuff and I was knocking them out. It wasn't that hard. He's like, but now in the UFC, like everyone has a chin. And so with that said, you know, it's not easy to knock these guys out. It's, it's, it's hard. So for Michael Morales, I'm not shocked now. All of a sudden, that eight finishes in a row that he had pre-UFC starts to slow down quite a bit. He is at a world-class gym, which I do like a lot. Five-inch reach advantage in this fight. He had the five-inch advantage there against Vernikoff. It worked out in his favor. If he gets busier earlier, because he was a little slow to get to work in that, in that fight against Vernikoff, if he gets busier earlier against Trevin Giles, that could be a way for him to secure some rounds using that distance. He's got speed and athleticism. Now, Trevin Giles, former defensive end, played high school football, pretty good athlete himself, right? But there's going to be a speed and advantage, speed advantage and power advantage for Michael Morales based upon what I saw from, from him on film. He's built like a brick house. Trevin Giles looks like he could do a little better work in the gym, could push some more time in the weight room. Michael Morales, man, he's young and very, very fit, very, very powerful. Against Rednikoff in that fight, Michael Morales was very good on the ground. On the ground, Trevin Giles against Delitza. These guys were playing footsie. Delitza is known for doing really silly things on the ground, making silly decisions, putting himself in awkward positions, not good positions. Same thing for Trevin Giles. They both went back and forth. If Trevin Giles makes some mistakes on the ground against Michael Morales, he's going to get pounded out or submitted. Michael Morales is a very aggressive guy on the ground. And I want to talk about one more thing, too. They're both listed as six feet, right? So they're both listed as six feet. Either Trevin Giles is not six feet or Michael Morales is taller than six feet. Usually it's the it's the it's the prior, which means Trevin Giles is probably more like 5'10, 5'11, listing at six feet. Because when you look at Michael Morales, he is six feet or somewhere around there. He's pretty tall and long. Trevin Giles is not a short guy by any means, you know, but I, I don't think he's as tall as six feet. So there should be also a height advantage there for Michael Morales as long as a reach advantage. Doesn't fight like a 22-year-old would fight, you would think. Comes out there, he's patient reads his opponent, studies his opponent, makes adjustments from round to round, doesn't jump in there too early, doesn't go crazy, doesn't throw wild punches or kicks, doesn't do anything that's going to be outside of his balance. That was noticeable in his Dana White Contender Series fight where he came in against Retnikov. Retnikov a little bit older, a little more mature, had more experience, but you see the Morales come, came in there very much under control. He'll need that maturity. He'll need to be grounded here. A pay-per-view event as his first fight for you know UFC, not like a little apex event over there in Las Vegas. It's a pay-per-view event. He's coming out here with the bright lights. He'll need to be mature. That's going to be a factor. Now, the one, the concerns I have on Michael Morales, not a lot, not a lot of concerns. They're going to be the obvious ones, though. He's undefeated and he's 22. Think about when you were 22. You weren't making all the best decisions at that point in your life. You still were learning. You still were being guided. Hopefully, you were around good people. They were helping to guide you. But you still had that, like, I can't be defeated complex. I'm the best in the world. I'm amazing. He is undefeated. So he hasn't really been tested, okay? He started slow against, against Retnikoff. If he does that against a better fighter or a fighter who could push the pace a little bit harder later on, that could be a problem. And he hasn't really faced UFC competition yet. This will be his first UFC matchup. We're going to see what it's about. Trevin Giles is born and raised in Texas, played high school football, he started his MMA career around 20 years old, police officer, as we mentioned, married with kids, 4-1 amateur career. He lost to Gerald Mearshat by submission in 2019. The biggest wins of his career over James Krause via split decision in 2020. Some people thought he didn't win that fight, but he's got the win. And then over Roman Delitza by decision in 2021. That fight was a weird one again. The link's in the description. You can watch that fight if you'd like. At one point in the fight, it's worth noting that Trevin Giles definitely clips Delitza. Has Delitza hurt? Hasn't wobbled, but is unable to then finish the job, whether it's because cardio, whatever the case may be. Roman Delita does a good job of, you know, grappling, hugging him in there, making the fight ugly. Man, Roman Delita, decent prospect, you know, Georgian prospect, and that was his first loss. So, he, you know, that was the situation where Trevin Giles took his O. But uh, that fight could have gone either way. And then James Krause, some people thought, again, that James Krause maybe won that fight. I believe James Krause came in, like, very last minute for that fight. A win's a win. Those are his two biggest wins. The things I like about Trevin Giles, he took Delita's O. Delita was 8-0 before that fight. Took a loss. And then Brandon Allen. 
Brandon Allen just fought recently, but Brandon Allen's in UFC, and he was 2-0 and before he lined up against Trevin Giles. So here he is now. Trevin Giles has a chance to take another O, third time here. I'm sure someone in this camp has mentioned it. If you look at the way Trevin Giles fights, his hands are lower. You know, he's, he's moving with his shoulders. Good movement overall. Throws punches from weird angles. You know, got this Mayweather type of approach, which is interesting because now in the UFC, you see a lot more guys using boxing that you can sort of mirror or compare to like traditional boxing styles in boxers, you know? And so you see that now. Some guys are using more boxing stances, more jabs, um, using more combinations. Whereas in the past, UFC was more like, I don't know, crazier, just big kicks or big punches or, you know, grappling. Um, now you're seeing a lot more boxing influence in the UFC. With that said, it's got a nice boxing style. Hands are pretty low. At times, could it be a problem for his, his guard? A little bit, a little bit. Uses his elbows amazing in the clinch. What I mean by that is even against, for example, Duplessis, who just lost that last fight against Duplessis. Before that happened, he was using elbows well in the clinch. He was using elbows and coming forward, like really in, in tight close. He did good tight quarters. He uses the elbow very well. Giles is an active fighter. He fought twice in 2021, twice in 2020. He has faced good competition. I think better competition than Michael Morales. Obviously, he's been in the UFC a little bit longer. He's got a high winning percentage, 14-3 and record overall. So, you know, he's more or less over the, over the course of his career. He's on the side of winning. He's young enough to be making improvements. Trevin Giles feels older, but he's only 29 years old. He's also at the point where he's only seven years the senior. They're both in their 20s. He's also making improvements. He's got a decent finish rate. He finishes about half the time that he wins lately. So like his last eight fights, half of those eight fights that he won, half of those where he finishes. I don't know if he finishes Morales here. I think Morales is a very young fighter. A lot of gas in the tank. Going to be tough for him. Could Trevin Giles test him? He's only 22. We don't know much about Morales' chin. Trevin Giles throws a nice one-two combination. Delita, yeah, as a witness, he got clipped by it. So the concerns I have here on Giles, he has been inconsistent of late. So in his last six fights, he's three and three. And the three losses he had, he got finished in those three losses. You don't love that. He got finished by Duplessis via round two TKO. In that fight, things are kind of going okay. He's coming forward, throwing actually some elbows in close. And then all of a sudden, Bang, bang. <laughs> Duplessis just completely clips him, knocks him down. I thought it was a little bit of an early stoppage. You know, these stoppages are so different. Some are like, the guy's basically dead. You know, it's like the referee's like, go, kill him. If he's not dead, he's not dead. And then other fights, it's like guys just get knocked down. And as they're falling down, the referee's coming in like, no. And it's like, oh, man, you know. But he did get finished there against Duplessis. Tough loss. I don't know how good Duplessis is yet. He's kind of new to the scene here. But in that fight, you show that, Tre sh I mean, Trevin Giles showed that he can be finished. You know, and he has been finished before. And last last thing on, on Trevin Giles, I think the cardio is something that could be better. Now, if you don't know, police officers have a very rigorous schedule. I think it was rumored he was working part-time, maybe not full-time anymore. Not sure, but he still works as a police officer from what I last heard. So with that said, it's like that does take a lot of his time. Maybe he doesn't have the time to work as hard during the off time or when he's outside of camp to be able to put that time in the gym because he looks like he's got the frame to maybe be in a little bit better shape. Again, Michael Morales coming in here chiseled. Like, he looks like he's working out nonstop. Very, very gifted physically. You know, looks like he's in phenomenal shape. The fights we watched to break down this film, we watched Morales versus Vretnikov. We watched Giles versus Delita and Giles versus Duplessis. Those three fight links are in the description. I give Trevin Giles an edge and experience. Clearly, he has a few more fights and more UFC experience. This is Mike Morales' first UFC fight. IQ-wise, I want to give an edge to Trevin Giles because he's been in the UFC a little bit longer. But, you know, this Michael Morales kid has shown a lot of good stuff from what we have seen. And he is undefeated at 12-0. So I'm going to say they have their, their IQ is probably very similar. Not to mention, Trevin Giles, that Delita fight. My gosh, some of the things that they were both doing were very questionable. The undefeated young prospect, I think these guys are very similar in terms of where they're at. MMA knowledge, MMA, you know, IQ. Cardio-wise, 
I'm not sure who's got the edge there. I want to say the younger fighter, but Morales looked a little tired too in round three. Trevin Goss has looked tired at times, but then again, he's won by decision. He's gotten through fights. You know, it's just tough. I can't really give either guy an edge there. Finishing ability, I think these guys are also very similar. You want to say Morales has won, what, eight of his last wins have been by finish, but again, eight wins against who? You know, once he came into Dana White contender series, became a decision right away. Trevin Giles, he has finishing ability. He does. It diminishes over the course of round two and three, I believe, but he does have finishing power, so I'm not sure who's got the edge there. Boxing-wise, again, not sure who's got the edge. You know, Michael Morales has an overall better game. I'd be like kicking and, and, and then throwing combinations probably better. Trevin Giles, though, has very fast hands, very hard hands, and he can hurt a guy. And then the last category I'm looking at is grappling. Who has the edge grappling? I'm thinking it's going to be Morales, and it's really more because of Trevin Giles making mistakes, transition mistakes, giving up his back. If Michael Morales could put Trevin Giles in a position like what he did with Rednikoff, where he had Rednikoff down, pounded him on the ground, use his grappling, use jiu-jitsu, that could be a problem for, for a tired Trevin Giles. That could be an issue. Props I like the best. Distance prop, minus 164 for the fight to go the distance. That makes sense. Decision winner. Morales by decision is plus 187. And Trevin Giles by decision is plus 240. You can see both these guys winning by decision. So I'm on the side of Trevin Giles. Plus 120. I think he has a chance here. At the same time, don't get me wrong. If Michael Morales comes in here and looks amazing, goes 13-0, either finishes Giles at some point, or gets a win by decision because of the striking numbers, I'm not surprised either. I just don't think I want to put money yet yet <laughs> behind a new ufc first time out guy i'm going to be more cautious this year in general with these first you know first time ufc fighters even though morales is coming here with a lot of steam i think he's got a good opponent here it's a good test if he wins we'll find a lot more about michael morales he'll fight again in 2021 we'll have a chance to bet on him again in the future for now i'm going to sprinkle maybe a quarter to a half unit on plus 120 money for trevin giles to win outright and i won't be able to parlay trevin giles or michael morales again i don't have a lot of confidence either way this is a very good matchup let me know what you guys are thinking in the description which way are you guys going to go michael morales the up and coming ecuadorian fighter or Trevin Giles, got a little more experience, a police officer from Houston. Next up, we got a middleweight bout at 185 pounds between two Brazilian fighters, Rodolfo Vieira and Wellington Terman. Terman goes by the Prodigy. He's 17-5 overall. Two and three in his last five fights. He's from Curitiba, Brazil. 25 years old. Six foot in height with 72 inch reach. He trains out of Gal Ribeiro team down in Brazil. As for Vieira, who goes by the Black Belt Hunter, he's 8-1 overall. Four and one in his last five fights. He hails from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. 32 years old. Six foot in height with 73 inch reach. He trains out of Grappling Fight Team. Now, according to Tapology, looks like Vieira is getting most of the votes, about 93% to be exact. I like Vieira to win the fight and it's not so much that i think Vieira is an amazing fighter and like i want to put all my money behind him and back the truck up it's more that i have a lot of questions about wellington terman good fighter but wow there's some holes in his game as we're going to talk about terman is landing 3.04 strikes per minute absorbing 3.96 so you don't have to be a mathematician to know that clearly he's absorbing four strikes per minute dishing out three not a good ratio same thing for Rodolfo Vieira. He's landing 2.6 strikes per minute, so even less than Terman. He's absorbing 4.04. Both guys are absorbing about four strikes per minute, and they're dishing out about two and a half to three strikes per minute. So not a good ratio for either guy. Now for takedown offense, here's where the fight swings in favor of Rodolfo. He's landing just under six takedowns per 15 minutes, and Terman's landing 2.22. Terman is an active wrestler. 2.22 takedowns per three rounds of a fight is not a bad ratio or a bad number, but Rodolfo Vieira is landing 5.77 takedowns per 15 minutes. At some point, you imagine and he's going to be looking to take the fight to the ground. Now, for takedown defense, 
something has to give here. They both have 100% takedown defense. Rodolfo Vieira, he's fought 12 grappling bouts. I noticed that in his topology. He went 7-4-1 in grappling, so definitely a submission guy, like submission artist. He's got he's got nine straight wins via submission. Clearly, is a submission master. Ironically enough, against Anthony Fluffy Fernandez back in 2021, he gassed out terribly in February of last year, and then he got submitted, which is kind of weird. His biggest win of his career for Vieira was against Dolston Stolfus. That was round three submission. Last year, 2021, what I really like about that fight, Dustin Solfus, he's a middling, you know, average level UFC fighter, but it was the fact that it was after the Fluffy Hernandez fight where Rodolfo gassed out, terrible gas tank, hit a wall. In this fight against Dolphus, he paces himself more. He's able to have energy in round three, and he gets a submission win in round three. So it's a nice comeback win. The biggest attribute I think Rodolfo Vieira brings besides submission is the power and strength. It's undeniable. When you look at the guy, he's built like a brick. The guy's got a lot of power, a lot of strength. He's going to make it very difficult for anyone he fights in the clinch, on the ground. Just a very strong guy. The flip side of it is he's got that kind of physique where you're like, oh, is he going to gas out? He's going to tire himself out. So my concerns here for Vieira, as we mentioned, the cardio. If you watch the Anthony Hernandez fight from last year, it's like, my God, it's almost like he had a bad weight cut or something because he hits a wall in that fight, can't get anything done, ends up getting submitted. He's lost three of his last four matches, including two grappling matches. I don't like that. You don't like guys coming in on any kind of losing pattern, but the reality is he has lost three of his last four fights. That's for Wellington Terman. He's got a 2-0 amateur record. He went pro in 2014. He uses a boxing stance. His biggest win of his career. Here we go. Sam Alvey. <laughs> Whenever Sam Alvey's name comes up in tapology, it just, it's a trigger for me. It's a trigger. And the reason why is when I first started breaking down mixed martial arts fights back in 2000, late 2020, going to 2021, Sam Alvey was one of the first fighters I came across. And I was like so perplexed by this guy because people were picking him to win fights. And I'm like, I don't understand this. This guy is not very good for lack of better words. Here we go. They fought. Sam Alvey, Wellington Terman, last year, split decision win for Wellington Terman. And he's lucky he got it. He lost two points in round three. Huge IQ issue for me there with this guy. He pokes Sam Alvey in the eye, loses a point after repeatedly being, being, uh, being warned. They go back to action, not even 10 seconds go by. And the ref steps back in and is like, dude, I just told you. Takes another point away from him. I don't know if that's a language barrier thing or what the hell is. I mean, there's no language barrier there. You just got a point taken away from you for having eye poke. And you go out there and you, you're not just, he doesn't just poke Sam Alvey again. He like, he rakes Sam Alvey's eye. It's like, dude, what are you thinking? Fighter IQ wise, I got to see a big difference from Wellington Terman for me to put behind any money behind him or any faith behind him. That was just a weird showing. Not to mention you win by split decision over a guy who, in my opinion, is not UFC level anymore. No offense, Sam Alvey. Big heart, smiling Sam Alvey, fan favorite. A lot of people liked him. But the reality is he gets out of there barely with a split decision win over a guy that to me is it's a benchmark. When I see guys struggle against Sam Alvey, I'm like, okay, that guy's not a good fighter. The things I like about Wellington Terman, he has showed improved cardio over his career. He does change levels, obviously landing 2.22 takedowns per, per three-round fight. Not bad. He's got a fairly patient approach, which can be a detriment at times, but a decent approach. And he's got a decent finish rate. He's finished five, sorry, nine finishes in 17 fights. About half the fights he's up when he wins, he wins by a submission or a finish of some kind. He uses takedowns to control his opponent. He did that against Alvey, and that may have been the reason why he won the fight, because against Alvey, it was close in the feet, but he got some key takedowns, and that was decent for him. He's got pretty good footwork. Both these guys do. So for guys that they're both pretty strong-looking, good physiques, but they're actually pretty light in their feet. They can circle. They can move pretty well. Now, my concerns here, Wellington Terman, number one, he doesn't push a pace. You know, I feel like at times he, leads the, he lets the other person lead the dance. And with the fight against Sam Alvey, it was all over the place. He never really took complete control. That's why I got split decision win. He's lost three of his last five fights. 
Got two got finished in two of those fights. Don't love that. He is chinny against Silva. If you watch that fight, the link's in the description. He's on his back, and Silva hits him with sort of a short little left hand and just knocks him out. He's out cold on his back on the ground. I think his chin isn't great. He tends to be robotic at times. So even though he's got decent footwork and he'll circle, he also can be robotic at times, especially I think when he gets fatigued, starts thinking too much, his technique gets a little bit more you know, stagnant. It's not very fluid. No kicking game at all. I did not see the guy do any kicking at all. His boxing defense is, it's not great. His, his guard's open. He's open to be punched. And it's like, look, here's a guy who's got a little bit of a chin issue. Don't leave your chin out there. He does that at times. Rodolfo Vieira is not an amazing boxer. But he does have heavy hands. He is a strong puncher. If he catches one to Terman, I'm not surprised if Terman just gets buckled up, lands on the ground. There's no submission. It's just over. The fights we watched to break down this film, we watched Wellington Terman versus Alvi 2021, Terman versus Silva 2021, Terman versus Sanchez 2020, and Terman versus Perez. Those four links for Terman if you want to watch a bunch of film on Terman. And I've watched a lot of film on him. I think the guy's a, he's a solid fighter. That's a nice way of putting it. But there's holes in that game like Swiss cheese. As for Vidal Vieira, we watched him against Stolfis. Nice comeback win for him last year, 2021. And then Vieira versus Hernandez. My God, I, I, he probably had never wants to watch that fight. I don't know what the hell happened there. But Vieira versus Hernandez, Fluffy Hernandez, about a year ago, February last year. Vieira's winning the fight, I guess. And then just, it's almost like he was a tire and someone just put a freaking hole in the tire and just whoosh. All the air just went out. Rodolfo Vieira is going to have a slight ex experience disadvantage here over Terman. Terman has fought 22 total fights compared to only nine fights for Rodolfo Vieira. So there is an experience advantage there for Terman. IQ-wise, look, it's not that Vieira has shown me amazing IQ. He had a gas tank issue. Gassed out against Fluffy Fernandez. Got submitted when he was supposed to be doing the submitting. I'm not giving him a very high IQ rating. But I'm giving a higher IQ rating than Wellington Terman. Who literally could not just listen to the referee saying, don't rake the guy's eyes. Cardio-wise... I would love to say Terman has better cardio than Vieira because of the Fluffy Hernandez fight, but that Stolfus fight showed that Vieira made some changes. So cardio-wise, just about equal. Finishing-wise, I give a slight edge to Vieira. Boxing-wise, eh, neither one of these guys is Floyd Mayweather. They're decent boxers. They're okay boxers. Terman leaves his head open. So does Vieira. Neither guy will probably look to box the entire three rounds. At some point, it's going to get grapply ugly. It'll be on the ground. I think that's where Vieira has an advantage. Now, grappling-wise, that last category, definitely an advantage for Vieira, unless he's tired. Right When he was tired against Fluffy Hernandez, Hernandez showed him the door. I like Vieira to win the fight at minus 300. I think it's priced appropriately. He's going to be one of my top-level ticket plays for my parlay pieces. Don't know if I'm going to bet it straight up, and if I do, I'm not going to be putting $300 on it. I might put maybe 50 bucks there just to have a little bit of straight-up action on it. But I like Vieira to win the fight. A lot of holes in Terman's game. I hope Terman could prove me wrong in 2022, but... I think it's going to be a rough year for him unless he's got easy opponents, and this is not going to be one of them. Two Brazilians lining up, going to be a great match. This is currently listed on the prelim card, but I think maybe it moves its way to the, the main card where they only have three matches right on the main card. We'll see what happens, guys. Good luck with this one. Next up, we have a welterweight bout at 170 pounds between Andre Fialo from Portugal and Michel Pereira from Brazil. Now, Pereira goes by Demelador. He's 26 and 11 overall, three and two in his last five fights. Minus 280 in the money line. He hails from Rio de Janeiro, 28 years old, six foot one in height with 73 inch reach. He trains out of Scorpion Fighting Systems. As for Andre Fialo, who's from Portugal, he's now based out of Deerfield Beach, Florida, where he trains out of Sanford MMA, six foot in height with 74 inch reach, 14 and three overall record, four one in his last five fights. Currently plus 225 on the money line. A one inch height advantage for Priera and a one-inch advantage in reach for Andre Fialo. Looking at the 878 votes here on Tapology, looks like Piera is getting 86% of the votes, only 14% of the votes coming in for Fialo. 
I like Pereira to win. I think, unfortunately for Andre Fialo, this is going to be a tough USC debut. Michelle Pereira has him beat in a few different ways. And, of course, in the experience edge as well, having fought some more UFC fights. Now, looking at the numbers side by side, striking numbers. Michelle Pereira is landing 4.22 strikes per minute. Landing, I'm sorry, absorbing 3.28. Now, we don't have any striking numbers here on Andre Fialo because he has not fought a UFC fight yet, so I apologize. But the numbers I'll go over here are for Pereira. Pereira's landing 2.01 takedowns per 15 minutes and defending at a 100% rate. We're going to talk more about that 100% takedown defense because he fought some decent fighters recently and displayed that takedown defense. Looking at Andre Fialo, Based upon the film, he's not much of a wrestler. Now, he's built like a wrestler, but he doesn't attempt a lot of takedowns. Works a little bit in the clinch, does a little bit of grappling on the feet, but he's not a takedown type of guy. He wants to fight for most of the time on his feet. Looking at the notes here I have in the two fighters, let's start with Michelle Pereira first. From Brazil, he was supposed to fight Muslim Salakov at UFC 46 about, what, a week ago. He gets the bump up here to UFC 270. On the main card against, I think, an easier opponent. Muslim Salakov, I think it's going to be a harder test for, for Michelle Pereira. So for Pereira... Not a bad deal. Still in the main card at a UFC pay-per-view event against a first-time UFC fighter. It's a good dish for Michelle Pereira. Now, he's from Brazil, began karate at age 12 years old. So you can tell still now the karate background and the way he fights. We're going to talk about the way he fights because there's no way to describe this style. He, he uses a style that's unique just to Michelle Pereira. We'll talk more about that. Um, he's a former Serbian battle champion um, at the welterweight division. He went pro 2011, so he's got about 12 years pro experience, 12, 13 years pro experience at this point. His first UFC fight was in 2019. He's 4-2 in the UFC. The biggest wins of the career for Michelle Pereira were against Nico Price in 2021 by decision and against Chaos Williams in 2020 by decision. His last two fights, he's won by decision, which... In prior part of his career, he did have a nice high finish rate, but he slowed down a lot in his finishing now with his last two fights obviously going to decision. The things I like about Michelle Pereira, very good finish rate overall. Okay, He had a seven-fight finish winning streak at one point before those last two fights. Okay, So he did have seven fights in a row where he won them by finish. Again, lower level of competition, that makes sense. Let's just say he's one of the most creative fighters. He combines like Capoeira, which is that artistic dancing fighting style from Brazil with karate, with... Just some crazy mofo shit, okay? He pulled off a move against Nico Price. If you haven't seen it, watch the fight. I think it's round two. Yeah, round two. Nico Price is on his back on the ground. And so you've got Michelle Pereira looking at him, standing above him. And then Michelle Pereira is like, I got an idea. I'm going to turn around, have my back face to this dude, do a back broken back flip, more of a back handspring to be technical here from the gymnastics standpoint. Does a backflip, back handspring, lands now on top of Nico Price in almost like a 69 position. <laughs> in the process of landing on top of him, he hits Nico Price in the head with like a knee or a kick, which should have been illegal. I don't know how this is like how this is you know, refereed. From there, Michelle Pereira like circles real quickly, then gets you know full mount control on top of Nico Price, proceeds to dominate him for most of that final part of that second round. So that's the kind of shit this guy will pull. On one side of it, very hard to defend against, hard to adjust. How do you adjust round to round against a guy who's never going to give you the same look, never do something the same? Kicking, throwing punches, how he comes in awkward, weird. He'll work on the ground, work on the feet. So that gives him some type of an element that's always unique for every fight. And again, who's he fighting? Andre Fialo, 14-3, and nice record, but first-time UFC newcomer. It's kind of a big test, right? 27-year-old coming here, first-time fight against a guy who's so creative. He defended takedowns against Nico Price. Again, 100% takedown defense for a guy who's taller. You know, he tends to be the taller fighter most of the time in his, in his bouts. Good takedown defense. He dominated Nico Price on the ground. So when they got to the ground in that fight, he took advantage of Nico Price on the ground. Not sure you can do that against Andre Fialo, but I'm just saying on the ground, Michelle Pereira is... 
he's suitable. He was able to avoid three rounds with Chaos Williams of getting knocked out. Now, Chaos Williams, decent fighter, but we all know that his power is in the hands. He's looking to hurt the guys he's fighting with the hands. In that fight against Pereira, Pereira just fought a very smart fight, stayed on the outside, ducked and moved, came in and out, stayed at distance, avoided the big punch. Does Fialo have the knockout power or punching power of a guy like Chaos Williams? I haven't seen it. He hasn't displayed that. Yeah, he's knocked out guys like, for example, James Vick, but even that fight, that was kind of a premature call. But even though James Vick was taking a beating. Anyway, the point is, does he have the power, for example, of a guy like Chaos Williams? I don't think so. Michelle Pereira also has another factor. It's the it factor. He is entertaining. If he pulls off any of that Nico Price craziness, I'm sure he's got one or two tricks in the bag, just things that make no sense, not going to land anything, but just get the crowd going. It's going to be a pay-per-view event. It is main card. He is a crowd guy. He's a wow guy. If the fight is close, you give him that little edge. You know what I'm saying? The judge's scorecard. Now, the things that concern me about Pereira, he has slowed down a lot in the later parts of round two and three of his last few fights. Watch the Nico Price fight. Wins round one. Wins three quarters of round two. By round three, he's kind of just jogging away and trying to stay away and disengage. Now, is that him using good fighter IQ and saying, I'm ahead in the fight. I know it. I'm ahead. Or is it just him running out of gas? Didn't love that. Didn't love that at all. His finish rate, like I said, has gone down recently. His last two fights have gone to decision. He's got a wild streak in him. People who, who were breaking down Pereira fights, let's say 2020, 2019, pre-2021, 22, were knowing this guy is, look, he's flashy, but he gets him in trouble. He's flashy, but... It gets him into weird situations. He's flashy, but it wastes, ex it wastes you know, um, uh, his gas tank. There are things about that flashiness and about that craziness. It's like, you know, double-edged you know, double sword there. One side of it looks great when he's doing backflips, landing a knee on somebody's head on the ground, which should have been illegal, and then getting full mountain. That's great. But just think about what, what happened there. He turned his back to somebody in a damn cage and then just does a back handspring. I watched it in slow motion. I'm like, what if Nico Price just lands an upkick? Like, would he have defended it in the middle of the air? Would he have seen it coming? I don't think so. So there are some questions there about can that craziness end up becoming a problem for him? Looking here at Andre Fiala, let's talk about him. He's got UAA experience. He's 0-2 in PFL, 3-1 and in Bellator. Excuse me. This will be his UFC debut. His most notable opponent, he did fight Chris Curtis. We all know who Chris Curtis is, who had an amazing end to 2021 with, you know, two wins and what, a few weeks apart. Chris Curtis beat him 2019 by TKO. He beat James Vick. Now, James Vick, believe it or not, is a former UFC champion. He had the belt for a quick minute. Um, he beat him round two TKO. It was a nice-looking win. Weird stoppage, though, after the fight was stopped, James Vick looked really like a broken man. So maybe it was a good stoppage, but the fight was stopped on the feet. Okay, That was ex-MMA. That was not in the UFC. The things I like about Andre Fialo, he is an active fighter. He fought four times in 2021. You know what I mean? During COVID, still post-COVID. That's impressive. He had four fights that he won in 2021. Four finishes. So here, here's where it's like, listen, plus 225 underdog. Yes, first UFC fight, but he's not coming in here as a complete can. The guy's got a little bit on his resume, you know. So again, active, four fights, four finishes, good finish rate. He's got this big overhand right, a la Khabib Namagomedov, which he then uses to just get a double leg takedown. A lot of these wrestlers do that. It makes sense. It's like almost like a look, look over here, look over, look over here, look over here. Oh, I'm going to come get you over here. So that's the idea. Big overhand right, then comes in with a double leg takedown. He displayed a solid chin at times against Curtis. So Curtis, we know, can bang. And Curtis, of course, does win the fight by TKO. I'm not, I'm not trying to double speak out of the side of my mouth. I'm just saying Curtis landed some good punches in that fight before that. And Andre Fiala showed a good chin. Do I think Michelle or Mikel Pereira has got the power to knock out Fiala? That's really not his thing at this point. I think in this point in his career, Michelle Pereira is a distance-level fighter, gives a great show, 
Hopefully his cardio is intact. He can give flying knee, double flying knee kicks, you know, whatever, something crazy all the way through round two, round three. Give us a good show. Probably get the decision here. Now, if he lands something wild, that's where it's like, well, then anything, you know, all you know, all bets are off. Maybe he does knock out Fialo. Looking at the fighters side by side on their striking comparisons and their boxing comparisons, I like Fiera in terms of the striking. Striking, I think he's got the advantage, both kicking, striking. He's got... Even, for example, length-wise, right? He's 73-inch reach compared to 74 for Fialo. Fialo doesn't fight that way. Fialo has more of a boxy, robotic style. So even though there's a one-inch reach advantage for Fialo, it'll look like Pierre has longer arms. It'll look like he has longer legs and arms because of the way he fights. Longer reach, um, just snappier punches, snappier kicks, more volume. So I like him in that department. Grappling-wise, I give an edge to Pierre too, Pierre, Pierre as well, because even, even when you look at Fialo, Fialo is a, looks like a wrestler. He's just not a wrestler, though. He doesn't fight that way. So... I like Mikhail Pereira. Again, the Brazilian background, the jiu-jitsu background. I like him in that area. Cardio-wise, I am going to give a slight edge to Andre Fiala because, again, recently I did see a problem there with Pereira, and that would be my concern in this fight. If round one or two is close, we get to round three, and Andre Fiala has a better gas tank, that's his path to victory to push tempo of Pereira. And basically, look at what happened in the, in the fight versus Nico Price. Third round of that fight, all three judges had Nico Price winning that round even though he lost round one and two. In that fight, you saw a significant slowdown for Pereira. So I'm going to give a little bit of an advantage there in cardio to Andre Fialo. When it comes to experience, definitely there's an edge for Pereira. He's just fought not just more fights, but also more UFC fights and done pretty well in the UFC. IQ-wise, I'm also giving an edge to Pereira. I feel like I've seen more from him. He can grapple. He can do some BJJ. He can defend himself on the ground. He can get back up. He could fight in the feet. He's also got that weird X factor that we don't even know what that is, that Pereira on steroids shit, right? So... From that standpoint, you know, I, I have to go with Pereira at minus 280, which will probably become minus 350 by the time the fight closes here. The book's closed for the fight to start. I like Pereira. He's the better fighter. He should win. This is an easier opponent for him than Maslam Salikov. He had a full camp and a week. He should be totally prepared. It's a great way to start the new year. They're serving him up a nice opponent here for Andre Fialo. Andre Fialo. Best of luck to the Portuguese fighter. He's going to have his hands full here. I think it's going to be tough for him to adjust. It takes him at least two and a half rounds. Maybe never adjust, but it's going to take him two to three rounds just to figure out what the hell is going on in front of him because this guy, Mikel Pereira, is such a unique fighter. At minus 280, I like Pereira. I like him by decision. I don't know what that prop is offhand. We'll cover those props in our Pick Your Poison prop show later on in the week. Anyway, I'm on the Brazilian to win the fight. Good luck with this, guys. Let me know what you think. Next up, we have a bantamweight bout at 135 pounds between the American fighter Cody Stamen and Saeed Nurmagomedov from Russia. Nurmagomedov is 14-2 overall. Four and one in his last five fights, currently minus 200 on the money line. He's 29 years old, 5'8", and high with 70-inch reach. He's out of Dag Fighter Gym. As for Cody Stamen, who goes by Spartan, he's 19-4-1 overall, 2-2-1 two, two in his last five fights, currently plus 170 on the money line. He hails from Sparta, Michigan, 32 years old, 5'6", in height, 64.5-inch reach. He's now based out of uh, Vegas, where he trains out of 10th Planet Henderson. Now, according to the public votes here on Tapology, it looks like Numaga Maddox getting most of the votes here, 82% to be exact. Only 18% of the votes coming in for Stamen. A little surprised in that I think Cody Stamen's like a decent fighter. He is ranked higher in this division um, than Said Nurmagomedov. But it shows you the name Nurmagomedov, how popular that is, and the Russian flag, and those fighters from, from Dagestan. So I believe the money line is being driven hard by that, and also public votes as well. We're going to talk more about it as we break down this, this fight between these two fighters. So Stamen's landing 4.03 strikes per minute compared to 4.65 for Said. So both guys are averaging about 4, 4.5 strikes per minute. So both busy fighters. Now Cody Stamen's allowing... 
3.36 strikes per minute, whereas Saeed's allowing 2.37. So better ratio there for Saeed, a little bit better in his stand-up uh, defense uh, than Cody Stamen. Now for takedown offense, surprisingly enough, you think Saeed Nurmagomedov, that region, Dagestan, hardcore wrestler, you immediately, immediately think about Khabib, right? But he's only averaging just about a half a takedown per fight. A 0.45 takedown per 15 minutes. The numbers don't lie. Compared to Cody Stamen, the former college wrestler who's landing 2.8 takedowns per 15 minutes, almost three takedowns per fight. Takedown defense, about the same. 75% for Stamen, 71% for Saeed Nurmagomedov. I'm going to imagine that 71% takedown defense of Saeed will be tested. If he does attempt a takedown, again, it's not going to be maybe more than once, twice in the entire fight because it's just not a big part of Saeed Nurmagomedov's game. Stamen, He's from Grand Rapids, Michigan, wrestled in college at Grand Valley State University. His mother, upon him finishing college, was the one who actually urged him to try mixed martial arts. He ends up going 19-1 and one as an amateur. Now, I got that off of Wikipedia. If you go on Tapology, it, it only has like seven or eight of his amateur fights, but supposedly he went 19-1 as an amateur before he went pro. He went pro 2010, so he's got 12 years pro experience. He won his UFC debut 2017 versus Tarion Ware. His 18-year-old brother, unfortunately, passed away two years ago. I heard this during the commentating of one of his past fights. I mean, it's well-known throughout the MMA circles, but uh, yeah, his 18-year-old brother, unfortunately, passed away a few years ago. Big heartbreak there for him and his family. He's 5'3-1 in the UFC, currently number 18 ranked contender in the bantamweight division. He moved to Vegas in 2019 to start training at 10th Planet Henderson, as we mentioned before. The biggest fights for the career of Cody Stamen have been against Brian Kelleher, who he won by decision in 2020. That was his biggest win by far. He lost to Marab Devash in 2021, so last year by decision. And I want to talk about that fight because Marab Devashvili is, what, number eight contender in this division. He went toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. It was a close fight. I'm not saying he won the fight, but it was a close fight. Marab did just enough to win the fight, and Marab and him went toe-to-toe. Wrestling-wise, Cody clearly held his own. Boxing-wise, he held his own. It was a close fight. Another fight he had was a draw against Yadong Song. Another good fighter in the UFC, 2019. He went toe-to-toe -to -toe with that guy for the full distance. He did lose in 2018 via a round two knee bar to Aljamain Sterling. So he's been in there with some championship-level guys. He's held his own. Yes, he got finished by Sterling, but still has been in there with some good opponents. I think better contenders or better overall um, uh, competition for him than Saeed Nurmagomedov. Now, the things I like about Cody Stamen's game, he's a very active fighter, averaging about 2.4 fights per year. He's never had more than 11-month layoff in his career, so you like that high activity. He uses it in oblique kick at times, but not to land it as a way to get entry to close the distance. That'll matter here because at five foot six compared to five foot eight for Saeed, he does have a two inch disadvantage in height. He'll also have a six inch disadvantage there on the reach, but he knows how to close distance. He uses techniques like that oblique kick in order to close distance. He'll set things up, change levels, good head movement side to side, um, up and down. Um, very active fighter, good cardio. He's able to do that head movement and active movement the entire three rounds of the fight. <clears throat> now he's not the most technical boxer, but good quick hands, and he throws in combination. If you look at some prior fights of his, you'll notice in, in, like in close, he'll throw a lot of body shots in combinations, like four or five shots in combinations. Very powerful. He's active. He'll get his guard back up. We mentioned the wrestling. Okay, he's got a wrestling background. Went to college and wrestled. He uses the wrestling. He's obviously averaging 2.8 takedowns per round. I mean, sorry, per round, per 15 minutes. It's annoying when you have a guy who's got a wrestling background, a college wrestler possibly, and they go in there and they stand up on their feet for 15 minutes. Like, use one of the things that you're good at to get a few points, get position control, get around. So he will use his wrestling, which I do like that a lot. Um, uses feints very well. So that goes again to his, you know, his movement, his cardio. He does set up a lot of his stuff through feints. You'll see that very early and often. Now, Saeed Nurmagomedov, 
He's a skilled boxer, a skilled striker himself, so it's not like he's going to like fall apart by the face. But the point is Cody Stamen does a lot of good head movement. He pushes the pace and the pressure. That's Cody. So he's probably going to force Saeed Nurmagomedov to circle him. That's not the end of the world for Saeed. But the point is Cody Stamen tends to command the center of the octagon. He's the one who pushes the pace and pressure. He likes to work that way. If he's ever backing up or allowing the other fighter to push pace against him, then that's probably it's not going well for him, and he's probably on the path of losing the fight. Some of my concerns here on Cody Stamen, Two fight losing streak. So the last few fights have been a little rough for him. When you look at his topology recently, it's a little banged up. Lost to Jimmy Rivera, lost to Marab Devashvili. They got a win 2020 against Brian Kelleher. Nice decision win. That was the fight he came in off of losing his brother in 2020, two years ago. Prior fight, Yudong Song, again, he got a decision draw in that uh, fight with um, Yudong Song. And then before that, he won against Alejandro Perez. And then before that, he lost against Sterling. So it's been like win one, lose one, lose, lose two, get a draw. Very inconsistent here the last uh, few years for Cody Stamen. Low finish rate, okay? He's gone to five straight decisions, and he's also got a decision in eight of his last nine fights. So clearly, Cody Stamen is not a finisher. That's not part of his game plan, which lends me to tell you, if you're going to bet on this guy individually as a prop, decision prop. Look at Cody Stamen by decision. I believe that's plus 250. Let me check it out right here. Plus 250. I'm going to put something on that. I like Cody Stamen here as an upset underdog here at plus 170 to win the fight. I like that outright. But if you like him to win, it's going to be up by decision. It's not going to be because of him knocking out Saeed Nurmagomedov or him submitting Nurmagomedov. It'll be two rounds that he gets, goes to judges' scorecards, maybe even split decision. Look for that prop, a split decision prop there for Cody Stamen. We'll cover that in the prop show more. But I like Cody Stamen to win as a possibly prop there, plus 250 by decision. Now, uh, my other concerns here about Cody Stamen, he doesn't use the wrestling enough, in my opinion. So again, averaging 2.8 takedowns per 15 minutes. But I've seen moments in fights where he goes a full round with people okay and doesn't use the wrestling at all so that's a situation where it's like again he's a wrestler use it against Magomedov he should be successful Magomedov's not an elite level wrestler he's good he's serviceable but not an amazing wrestler um all right so look here at my notes on Saeed Magomedov he's from Dagestan as we mentioned he's the cousin of Umar Magomedov but he doesn't have any blood relationship to Khabib Magomedov they know each other they have a relationship they've done some training together but he's not related to Khabib he went pro 2009 so 13 year pro career he signed with the UFC 2018 he won his debut against Justin Scogans he's the number 27 ranked contender so here's where it becomes like a numbers game if you're just playing MMA numbers right here Cody Stamen should win Stamen's the number 18 ranked contender in this division Saeed's the number 27, and Marab Devashvili's the number 8 contender. Cody Stamen went round to round, close fight against Marab Devashvili. So if you're looking at the math, Cody Stamen should win the fight from that perspective. But again, he is an underdog here. I think that's partially because of the name. It's partially because of, you know, Saeed, the Russian flag, the whole deal. You know, 3-1 and one in his UFC career. So Saeed's got a good record in the UFC. He's got two finishes by TKO, one by decision, and he lost his single fight by decision. Biggest wins of his career. He beat Anderson Dos Santos via round one choke 2017. That was before Dos Santos joined the UFC. Now he's currently in the UFC. He also beat Ricardo Ramos around one body kick 2020 so when you look at that again i don't think that he has the resume yet to say oh he's got tough fighters in his background a matter of fact i argue that potentially cody stamen is the hardest competition to say no has faced to date whereas for cody stamen i've marab devashvili is a higher level opponent than saeed um maybe alderman sterling he's fought in higher level guys than saeed Nurmagomedov. this is not the biggest test for cody stamen now the things i like a lot about uh saeed Nurmagomedov. He's got a solid finish rate. He's finished three of his last six opponents. So he definitely has a little bit more finishing ability than Cody Stamen. He's got a solid chin. Looking at the fight against Ronnie Barcelos a few years ago, he took some solid shots in that fight. Didn't seem to phase him too much. Took him well. He's got good takedown defense. Now, like, not amazing. Obviously, 71%. But against Ronnie Barcelos, who's an... Listen, if you don't know, 
Roddy Barcelos is a multiple-time South American uh, wrestling champion, multiple-time national champion in wrestling um, in, in Brazil. The guy's a hardcore wrestler. He was unable to get Saeed Magomedov to the ground every time. Saeed was able to defend some of those takedowns, did a good job. He'll have to do it again here against Cody Stamen. So his takedown defense is pretty good. He's going to have a two-inch height and reach advantage here, and he likes to strike. If Saeed has it his way, it'll be all three rounds on the feet at a distance the entire time which will, again, bode well to him, height and reach advantage. But I think Cody Stamen finds a way to close the distance. That's, that's just what I'm thinking here. But if, his, if it stays at distance the entire time for three rounds, Saeed will have an advantage there. Saeed also has a good kicking game. Cody Stamen doesn't use kicking very much. It's not really part of his arsenal. Saeed uses kicking quite a bit, especially lower leg kicks, kicks to the lower legs, lower, lower body, not so much to the head, but he uses kicks in combination. He's a good striker. I think there's a striking advantage here for Saeed Nurmagomedov over Cody Stamen, who, look, Cody Stamen's a former college wrestler. It makes sense. His is like his best work is in the clinch, in close, in through the body. My concerns here on Saeed Nurmagomedov, okay, he doesn't have elite-level wrestling. He'll be tested in this fight. So you think again, Nurmagomedov, you assume he could wrestle. Not really. He's got okay wrestling ability. It's not elite level. It's not like what you're thinking when you think about the guys from Dagestan. He's not been active recently. He's got a two, he had a two-year layoff before this fight. He fought once in 2020. He fought once in 2019. So he's been very inactive recently. Now, before the last few years, he was active. The last few years, he's not been, he's not been active. Last point on, on, on Saeed. Very limited competition. Um, so again, he has not fought high-level competition. Has definitely not fought the level of competition that Cody Stamen has. And Cody Stamen has shown that he can hang in there with some of the best guys in his division. The film that we watched for these two fighters to break down this film, we watched Cody Stamen versus Marab Davashvili, Stamen versus Brian Kelleher, Nurmagomedov versus Ronnie Barcelos, and Nurmagomedov versus Mark Striegel. Those four links are in the description. You can watch those films on your own. Now, last few points in these two fighters here, side-by-side -side comparisons. I give an experience advantage to Cody Stamen for the reasons we talked about. He's fought some better fighters. They've both fought about the same amount of fights, but he does have a few more fights, Cody that is, over Saeed as well. IQ, I give a small advantage there to Cody Stamen, and that's more because of the inactivity of Saeed. Saeed has just not been active the last few years. Not sure why, not sure if it's COVID issue, whatever. But the point is, Cody Stamen has found a way to be active the last few years, whereas Saeed has not been. Uh, Cardio-wise, these guys are very similar. They both look good in round three of their fights. Finishing-wise, I do give an edge to Saeed Nurmagomedov. He has had, again, three finishes in the last six fights, whereas Cody Stamen's been to decision in eight of his last nine fights. Boxing-wise, I give an edge to Saeed Nurmagomedov. He is the sharper striker. He has the reach advantage. He uses kicks, whereas Cody doesn't use kicks. But as for grappling, I definitely give an advantage to Cody Stamen. Even though Saeed Nurmagomedov can definitely handle himself on the ground, has some submission wins, trains with you know Khabib and some of that arsenal, his cousins Umar, Umar Nurmagomedov, he's got it in the in the loins, it's in the blood, right? He can wrestle, it's just natural. But I believe Cody Stamen has a wrestling grappling advantage. He has a power advantage. You know, Cody Stamen is a thick dude. He is shorter, but shorter same weight means he's got a little bit more, you know, a little more swole. So. The props I like in this fight, I like both fighters by decision. It's plus 110 for, for Saeed Nurmagomedov by decision, plus 250 for Cody Stamen by decision. And the fight going the distance is currently minus 278. I imagine that swells a little bit to about minus 300, minus 350 at some point. These fighters, they're both very equally matched. They're both good contenders in its division. There is finishing ability on the side, on the side of Saeed Nurmagomedov. But this is the toughest competition. This fight most likely goes to distance. But anyway, I'm going to go with the dog here. I'm going to go with the American fighter. I know I'm going to be on an island here. A lot of cappers, a lot of people will be on the side of Saeed Nurmagomedov. I get it. My first time breaking down this film, my first time through looking at my notes, my first time watching the film on these two fighters, I was on Saeed Nurmagomedov. But then once I started looking at the rankings more, and I'm not just trying to be a rankings whore here, but looking at the rankings, some of these numbers do matter. Okay, it does matter that Cody Stamen does get almost three takedowns per 15 minutes. That's going to matter. It's going to be a factor here. 
It does matter that he went toe-to-toe with Murab Vashvili. It does matter he's had better competition. And one recent fight that kind of triggered me to think more about experience factor was the fight with Joseph Holmes versus Jamie Pickett. I chose Joseph Holmes, and I, I blew up in my face because he got dominated that fight and Pickett won. But one of the big things that came, I came away from that fight thinking about was a lot of the cappers who I listened to who chose Pickett talked about experience. And you know what? In 2022, I'm going to pay a little more attention and give a little more weight towards experience. When fighters come in, their first UFC fight, obviously Slava Claus came in, did his thing, first UFC fight. But you got to dig at least a double take on the first time a fighter's coming into their first UFC fight, no matter how they're coming into UFC, whether they came in through Bellator, through Dana White Contender Series, whatever their course of action was to become a fighter on the UFC. If it's their first fight, they're young, they lack experience. In the case of Joseph Holmes, I like Joseph Holmes. I think he has still a bright future. But you can see the experience was a factor, okay? So I'm going to count the experience here for Cody Stamen. I think he's got more of it. He's been in the octagon more recently. This fight is on American soil. I think it's going to be close. I think at minus 200, Sayyidu Magomedov, that money line is being fluffed up a little bit by the last name, the region, Russian flag, the whole deal. If his last name was Johnson and his first name was David and he was from Iowa, I think Cody Stamen here is favored. I'm talking the same skill set. Imagine Sayyidu Magomedov, this taller, longer guy, okay striking, hasn't fought a lot, two-year layoff, and his name is David Johnson, he's from Iowa, and he's working part-time at UPS. I mean, what else has Saeed Nurmagomedov been doing? He's definitely not been doing this for a living. He hasn't fought in two damn years. So I'm just saying, when you put it together, don't let the Saeed Nurmagomedov name fool you here. He's a good fighter. Cody Stamen here is ranked higher up. He's number 18 in his, in his division here, whereas Saeed Nurmagomedov is like, what, number 27 or something like that. So anyway, that's the breakdown, guys. Sorry to be so long-winded. I'm on Cody Stamen. Let me know what you guys think. I wish you guys the best of luck in this fight if you're wagering on it. That's the breakdown, guys. Take care. The co-main event for UFC 270 is going to be a flyweight bout for the belt and 125 pounds between the Mexican fighter Brandon Moreno and Davison Figueiredo from Brazil. This is the third time these two fighters have fought in the last three years, so this is a trilogy. Davison Figueiredo is 22-1 overall, 3-1-1 in his last five fights, 34 years old. 5'5 in height with 68-inch reach. He trains out of Team Figueredo, which is actually his gym that he founded there in Brazil. As for Brandon Moreno, who goes by the Assassin Baby, he's 19-5-2 overall, 3-1-1 in his last five fights. He hails from Tijuana, Mexico. 28 years old, 5'7 in height with 70-inch reach. He trains out of Entrum Gym. He also does some training out of Ludwig Mixed Martial Arts. Now looking here at Tapology, the public votes are coming in here on the side of Moreno. Which makes sense. He is the fighter who won the last match. We'll talk more about that in detail. But 77% of the votes here are coming from Reno. Only 23% of the votes are coming from Figueredo. A little surprised because I, I think that Figueredo is getting a little overlooked here. He's the guy who... He was the initial title holder before he lost the belt here to Brandon Moreno. And the first fight was very, very close. He probably would have won it. It wasn't for some points being taken away. Striking numbers here. Moreno's landing 3.44 strikes per minute. Absorbing 3.29 okay ratio a little more output than what he's receiving but it's more or less equal for Figueredo, same thing and it's just slightly less in, in his in his side 3.24 strikes per minute he's landing absorbing 3.40 so again their striking numbers just about identical takedown offense is also very similar about two takedowns per 15 minutes for Brandon Moreno and about a takedown and a half for, for Davis and Figueredo. now I will note that for Figueredo, as the fight goes on as round four and five come around the takedown offense definitely diminishes. I would say for Moreno too, but more so for Davison. I feel like just his physique, his physique, a little stronger of a guy, a little more muscularly. He fatigues later in the fight. His takedown offense kind of just dissipates. Now for takedown defense, again, very similar. 65% for Moreno, 
58% for Figueredo. So these guys, you know, side by side, five foot five to five foot seven, two inches difference there for Marino. Reach wise, only two inches again more for Marino. So size wise, reach wise, even age wise, only a few years, you know, uh, in, in the senior there, Figueredo, who's 34 years old compared to 28 year old Marino. So both fighters are in their prime. They've both fought very close fights. These guys are very evenly matched. I would listen closely to any good cappers out there to give an argument for either side. Okay, this fight's going to be very hard to find a lean. I'm going to lean ever so slightly towards Brandon Moreno, the champion. Um, and that's partially because he has the belt. So if it is a very close fight, maybe he does enough to retain the belt using the old school philosophy that if, you know, he's not knocked out or completely, you know, run over, um, that he should retain the belt. Now, I will I will note, though, that David Figueredo is game. If he comes in here after a very good camp, you know, not too horrible of a weight cut because he's been rumored to have some tough weight cuts. He can come in here and pose a hell of a threat to Moreno. There's no doubt about it. Moreno, though, seems as if right now at this point in his career, he's making substantial improvements. Whereas with Davidson Figueredo, I feel like we kind of have what we're going to have with him. All right, some notes I have here in the two fighters. Let's talk about Brandon Moreno first. So he was born and raised in Tijuana, Mexico. Interesting backstory on him. He goes to Entrum Gym right now. That's where he trains, right? His mom enrolled him in that gym when he was 12 years old, just to help him lose some weight and get in shape. Now, how ironic would it be that that's the same exact gym he's still at where he trains out of, and he's now the first ever Mexican UFC champion. He fought 2016 Ultimate Fighter. He got a contract 2016. He ends up getting cut in 2018 after losing to uh, Pantoja by decision. So he gets cut, actually comes back to the UFC for the second stint, and now it's the second time around. He's obviously champion, you know, doing well. He's married, has three daughters. He hosts multiple MMA Spanish podcasts. His biggest wins of his career, Brandon Roval, round one TKO, Kai Kara France, decision 2019, and then, of course, Davis and Figueredo, the submission win, round three, just last year. The first fight, they fight to a very even fight. There's points taken away from Figueredo. That's what ends up making this a draw. Okay, so the first fight they fought, it goes to a very close, you know, very close fight, very hotly contested, ends up being a draw because of points being taken away from Davis and Figueroa. The rematch comes around. In the rematch, you see now an improved version. Moreno, he comes out there, submits Davis and Figueroa in the third round. The positive I like here about Brandon from Moreno, number one, he's on a five-fight winning streak, kind of. <laughs> what I mean by that is he's had two draws in that winning streak. Still a five-fight winning streak, I guess, right? He's a balanced fighter capable of grappling and striking. Obviously, he proved that by submitting Brandon Moreno. And he is like that prototypical Mexican boxer fighter. Really good chin, durable chin, very durable. Will stand toe-to-toe, -to -toe, has the you know has the ability to take some punches and dish them out. Takes damage well. Doesn't seem to get two-phased. If he gets hurt, he can, he can sort of box through it, right? He did go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Figueroa in their first fight. They both did a lot of damage to each other. So you've seen the durability. You've seen that Mexican chin, right? He's got an elite jab and very good boxing skills. Again, the prototypical boxing background. He's got it. He's got those skills and he's got a very good lead, lead jab. He's capable of going five rounds, very good durability, very good endurance. Now, my concerns with Brandon Moreno, he's willing to bang. He's got like that Rocky gene. He's willing to trade with the guy in front of him. And so by doing that, he exposes himself to damage. I don't believe that it's in the best interest of either of these two fighters to fight the same kind of fight they fought the first time that they fought. That's my concern with Moreno. He will stand there toe-to-toe -to -toe with a guy. He's not going to back down. He trusts his chin. He trusts his durability. And that at some point can come to a head. You know what I'm saying? His boxing defense is also not the greatest. Offense is amazing. Good slick jab. Holds his guard a little bit low. Has like a little bit of a Mayweather, you know, edge to him. Problem is his hands are low. and He doesn't have as much of a head movement or quickness that someone like, for example, Mayweather has. And when it comes to quickness and athleticism, when Figueredo is fresh, 
in there in the, in the in the cage when he's fresh, you know, early first round, first round, second round. I think he has a quickness advantage here over Brandon Moreno. Now, looking at Davison Figueroa, some notes I have on him. He's from a really small town in Brazil where buffalo roam free. Like, man, you got to be some from the cut where if you go outside, there's just roaming buffalo. His dad, actually, when he were growing up, his dad was herding buffalo, and this dude grew up an actual cowboy, like a Brazilian cowboy. Davis Figueroa was a cowboy. So he was about 13 years old. Starts wrestling actually at nine years old. His dad was a wrestler. His dad did some wrestling, so he got it from his father. Nine years old, starts wrestling, gets into it more into high school. As a teenager, starts mixed martial arts at the age of 16. So that's his background into how he got into mixed martial arts for Davis and Figueredo. Now, he did leave Brazil at one point. He trained briefly at Alpha Team Alpha Male, but then went back to Brazil, started his own gym. Went pro 2012. His brother, Francisco, is also a UFC fighter in the flyweight division. I watched him fight last year. He's okay. He's okay. Looks a lot like his brother. Most notable opponents for Figueredo, Brandon Moreno, the guy who's got the belt. They fought twice, went toe-to-toe the first time. Second time, Figueredo just got outdone, out outperformed. Round three, got, cardio wasn't great, got submitted. You know, got just completely outperformed. And then Alex Perez, who he beat round one submission in 2020 to actually capture the title. So those are the two biggest wins for Figueredo. So he hasn't really fought a lot of really notable guys. It's Brandon Moreno for him, and Moreno's pretty much... Figueroa for him. These are the two best guys they fought is each other, right? Now, the pros I like are Brandon Figueroa. He's got a very high finish rate. Now, especially for this weight class, 125 pounds, the dude has three submission finishes in his last four wins. He's got four straight wins by either submission or TKO. So his last four straight wins have been either TKO or submission finish. He had a five-fight winning streak until he and before he met Moreno. So things were going smoothly for him. He was riding high. Everything's going great. He ends up fighting Moreno the first time. He gets a point taken away from him in one of the rounds, and it costs him. It ends up being a draw. If that doesn't happen, he retains the belt. And this trilogy doesn't even happen, right? So they fight again the second time. In the rematch, he gets submitted. And so now here we go the third time, right? Third time's a charm. He's very athletic. I think he has a quickness advantage here over Moreno, especially when he's fresh. I also think he's got a power advantage, like a little more strength. It's not just because he looks that way. He does have a little more strength and power. But in round three of their last fight, that goes out the window. Moreno's got better cardio. He's able to get to him, able to submit him, right? When Moreno submits Figueroa in that second fight, it's a shocker for everyone because that's what usually Figueroa does to someone else. Moreno's a boxer, striker. So it just showed you that, you know, the, sort of the depth of how much this guy Moreno has grown and how much he's improved. Now, my concerns with Figueroa, cardio, I mentioned it before. He's also just like Moreno, willing to put himself in danger. He's willing to take shots. He believes in his chin. He trusts his chin. I mean, it's just 125 pounds. You're not walking around with like heavyweights here swinging and knocking you out with one punch. So both guys are willing to stand in the phone booth. It's great for television. Television. I mean, it's great for ratings and all that stuff. And we as fans love it. But I just don't know that's the right path to victory for either guy. And at some point, it's going to curb their career. It's going to cut some years off of their career. You know what I'm saying? The film that we watched for this fight, Breakdown. We watched Moreno versus Davison, part one and part two. Those two links are in the description. I encourage you to watch those two fights if you haven't watched them already. You can watch prior fights in these guys. You can find fights from back in the day. Ultimately, they're fighting each other for the third time. That film tells me a lot of what I'm going to expect here. If you hear anyone tell you that for sure, 100%, they're on one side or the other, I don't know how you could be. These guys are so evenly matched. I mean, I'm trying to find an edge here. And when it comes down to it, I'm going to point towards Moreno to win the fight. But ever so slightly, I think the money line is correct here at minus 170. Could it balloon to maybe minus 200, minus 225 by the time the fight closes? Yeah, that all makes sense. You know, he is the champion. He did win the last fight. I think he won in dominant fashion. I think he's making the better improvements. 
if I could take one more thing away from Davidson Figueroa that, that's a concern, he runs his own gym. That's his gym. You know, sometimes when it's like your gym, you don't get that. I mean, you don't get enough, per se. You, there's something missing. Whereas Entram Gym, where Brandon Marino's at, that gym is on the map now. There's a lot of Mexican fighters or Latin American fighters, Central American fighters that are training there. Even guys that are not from Central America are now training at this gym. This gym is becoming like an international spot where top mixed martial arts are training and coaching. You know, with that said, I'm going to choose Brandon Moreno. I think at 28 years old, this guy is a UFC star in the making. You saw a lot of promos of him last year, promos, commercials, family man. He's been at some UFC events, been, you know, ringside, seems to be just a likable character. And to me, is the kind of guy that I think the UFC really wants to promote and put a, put him out there on a poster. Not that Davidson Figueroa is like a bad champion or a bad guy. I'm not saying that. But this is the first Mexican champion UFC. It's good for the UFC brand. He seems very appreciative. Again, it's the second time around. I think he keeps the belt here. For Davidson Figueroa, it's like kind of tough here. Like, where do you go from here? If he loses right now, it's like, what do they do? Fight again in like a year or two? Because the reality is, Davidson Figueroa is probably going to maintain the number one ranked position here. And in two years from now, he'll be 36. He'll still be the number one ranked contender. Moreno will be only 30 years old. So, I mean, they're probably going to fight a fourth time at some point, I guess. There's not many guys in that division that can contend with these two guys. These guys are pretty much the coup de la, the creme of the creme. I think Moreno wins the fight. Experience-wise, these guys are even. IQ-wise, very, very similar. I give a small edge to Moreno because I believe that he can grapple with Figueredo. And then on the feet, he can also box with Figueredo. So they're equal there. But when it comes down to actually the whole overall game, I think he's overall better in every area in terms of all the areas. Now, I'm not saying he's better grappler. I'm not saying he's a better boxer. I just think when you add everything up, he's a little bit better in every area. For cardio, I give a slight edge to Moreno. Finishing ability, I give an edge to Figueredo. For boxing ability, again, technically, I give it to Moreno. Power-wise, there's a power edge there for Figueredo, but he gets loose, gets sloppy, gets tired. Grappling edge clearly has to be with Moreno because he just submitted this guy in the last fight. What's the kryptonite for Moreno? I think he's his own kryptonite. I think he gets it in his own way. Lets himself get hit too much. Plays too much of the Rocky role. He's got to be sharper, cleaner. None of that Arturo Gotti stuff. Don't get CTE. Have a long, good career. Be a good father to your kids and be a good husband to your wife. As for Figueroa, his kryptonite is the cardio. If he could maintain a fresher approach in round three, four, five, the championship rounds where he got submitted last time, where he got a point taken away from him before, you know, he's got to be cleaner and fresher. Has he wrapped it? You know, has he wrapped that up in his training? Has he got better with that? We'll see. For Moreno, he's going to be willing to go to deeper waters. With that said, I like Moreno to win the fight, but man, I don't know how I'm going to bet it. Maybe put it into a parlay or two. Maybe put a half a unit on it. I don't feel confident enough to even put minus 170, minus 200 straight up, you know, to, to get to get a winner here. Good luck with this fight. Let me know what you guys are thinking. Let me know, give you some feedback, some input. What are your thoughts? Do you like Figueredo? Do you like Moreno? Let me know. The main event for UFC 270 is going to be a heavyweight clash for the title between Francis Ngannou from Cameroon and Cyril Gan from France. Now, if you don't know already, these guys are former teammates and training partners at MMA Factory in France, where Francis Ngannou left. Now he is based out of Extreme Couture. Anyway, so for Cyril Gan, who goes by Bon Gammon, he's 10-0, undefeated, 5-0, obviously, in his last five fights, 31 years old, 6'4", in height with an 83-inch reach. And again, he's an MMA Factory. As for Francis Ngannou, who goes by the Predator, he's 16-3 overall. 5-0 in his last five fights. He's from Paris, France, via Cameroon. We'll talk about his trek from Cameroon, from Africa, and his immigration to France, and now to the United States. He's 35 years old, so four years older here than Cyril Gaon. 
also six foot four, also 83 inch reach. And again, he's out of extreme couture. So these guys have a lot of similarities, not to mention again, coming from the same gym there in uh, France. Now looking at the public votes here, Gon is getting 60% of the votes here. Ningano is getting 40%. Now again, Ningano is technically the heavyweight champion right now, but Cyril Gon has the interim belt. Um, so always interesting when you see though, the person who is technically the champion as the underdog verse. So he was born in Cameroon. He immigrates to France at the age of 26 years old. In the process, he gets locked up in Spain. He actually spends some time in jail in Spain, about two months. From there, he moves on to France. In France, he's now living in the streets. He's homeless. He meets a friend who introduces him to MMA Factory and to Coach Lopez, who ends up being the guy who mentors, creates, and molds Francis Ngannou. So Fernand Lopez allows Ngannou to live at the gym train at the gym, obviously work at the gym. And so that's the big break there for Ninganu. Nine years pro experience. He lost his second pro fight to Zuma Sisi, 13 and four fighter. If you take a glance at tapology, you'll see the picture of this guy. And it's like, how did he, how did he lose to Zumana Sisi? This guy just does not look a fighter. He left MMA Factory to train Extreme Couture in Vegas. So now he's based in the United States. MMA Factory is the current gym though of his former teammate. And I think it's notable in this whole breakdown to not overlook the fact that Coach Lopez, who basically made Francis Ngannou, not, I shouldn't say made, but molded him, trained him, birthed him from a coaching standpoint, he knows all the ins and outs of Ngannou, right? He knows that because he helped to mold this guy. Now he's training the new guy. It's almost like he made Ngannou the first time around, and now Gan is his new creation, right? So there's definitely going to be a strategic advantage there, I think, for Ngannou's corner in that they know him so well. They trained with him. He was a training partner. The Francis Ngannou Foundation runs the first ever MMA gym that's currently in Cameroon, so he's giving back to his country. He lacked formal education as a child. So I want to mention that. Like he didn't go to middle school, high school, but look at the fact that he speaks three languages. And look, they say when you speak multiple languages, it's a, it's a, it's a sign of intelligence. Definitely a sign of intelligence. You're using more of your brain. He speaks his native Nimba, which is, I believe, his native language there in Cameroon. But he also speaks French very fluently. And he learned how to speak English after joining the UFC. And when you hear him talk in English, he speaks just fine. His biggest wins, obviously his title bout against Stipe Miocic, where he won that fight via KO 2021. That, that uppercut, that whatever hook, whatever you call it, the way he knocked him out, wow, spectacular. Um, that fight link is in the description. You can watch that fight when you have a moment. That knockout is worth a moment to watch it if you haven't seen it. He also beat Jarzinho Rosenstrike round one KO in 2020. And then he also beat Andre Orlovsky 2017. And I go back to 2017 because Orlovsky is getting old. He beat him round one KO. But even in an older age of Andre Orlovsky, he tends to give the guys that are not top-level contenders, he gives them a hard time, and sometimes he takes them to distance. And that fight with Andre Orlovsky, he took him out in round one via KOs. That's what you should be doing if you're a top-level elite heavyweight like Francis Ngannou. The positives I like about Ngannou, he's fighting just over two fights per year, so active heavyweight. He's never been stopped, so he's got a solid chin. Flawless finish rate. So all 16 of his wins, all 16 for Ngannou, have been by a finish. 12, take, 12 KOs four submissions, 11 of those finishes have been in the UFC. So the guy clearly has top level finishing power. On the flip side, you can say, well, it doesn't maybe have good, you know, cardio, can't take some of the distance, can't get a decision. True, true. Now my concerns about Ningano, this will be his first defense of this title. Okay, that's always a little bit of extra pressure. You know, you're coming in here after the win against Miocic. He's also lost via decision. That's like his kryptonite. So if you want to beat him, that's the angle. When you look at his opponent here, isn't this the perfect opponent? A guy who's got good cardio, who is patient, doesn't mind circling, doesn't mind taking his time, has good volume, has the endurance, has won by decision over guys like Volkov. He also has weird losses. Let's talk about the odd, the odd losses here for Nagano. He lost to Derek Lewis by decision in 2018. And you're like, how does a fight between Nagano and Lewis 
go to decision. That was a rough point. I think that was like one of the low points there for Ngannou's career where he was trying to find himself, maybe, you know, just off track, not being as aggressive as he should have been. He talked about that in past interviews. But anyway, that was a bad loss for him by decision. Also lost by decision to Stipe Miocic in 2018. That was back-to-back losses there in 2018. Again, a rough patch for him. And then that first loss, Zumana CC, I think it's his name, 13-4 and four fighter, 2013. Um, just an average French heavyweight fighter. And so weird that he lost. So just some odd losses there for Ngannou in his past. If he lost this fight, this wouldn't be categorized as a bad loss or an odd loss, right? There's rumors that the UFC would be driving down the hype of UFC 270 to like mess up the box office numbers or mess up pay-per-view to drive down the, the market value in essence of Francis Ngannou. Now his market value being that to the UFC, so if the UFC was looking maybe to pay him less or whatever the case may be. What I'm saying to that rumor is, I don't think that rumor has any legs. It doesn't really, it's not like the, the UFC and Dana White are not gonna cut off their nose to spite their face and be like, we're gonna teach him and show him who's boss by driving the numbers. And with that said, check this out. You go on ESPN.com right now, and if you look and you just happen to flip through a few pages there, I saw banners on the top of ESPN.com, not for Gijik Chikaze versus Qatar tonight, which is coming on today. I saw the banners there for Ninganu versus Gone, which is coming up in two weeks. You know, any, any bullshit out there that's suggesting that the UFC is trying to drive down numbers, I don't buy that at all. They want their money, pay-per-view event, it's a heavyweight bout. They'll deal with whatever Ninganu wants to do after the fight. Um, now, suppose we Fran Francis Ninganu wants to do a mega boxing ma match with someone like, Fran like uh, with Tyson Fury. It's been talked about, rumored on Twitter. He's gone back and forth with Fury. In the event he wants to do a boxing match with Fury, it would somehow have to be coordinated with the UFC because he is a UFC rostered fighter. They'd have to have a hand in it. But they've done this before with Conor McGregor when he fought against Mayweather. So there's ways and paths to do it. But it seems as if Nagano wants to do it on his own. Like, I don't want to be under contract with you guys. I don't want you guys getting a part of the cut. I want to do this like Jake Paul style. Like, I want to do it, you know, the way uh, Tyron Woodley's making his money, whatever. So he's looking for a big payday. He hasn't made a big payday yet in the UFC. I think his biggest payday so far has been like a half a million dollars, which is still a lot of money. But he's talked about this and he's complained about his pay. He's complained about not having a lot of money. Who knows what that means? Is it really does he have a lot of money? Has he paid out some bills? Is it expensive to pay coaches, the whole nine? I don't know. But there's been this back and forth now over the last year. This is also the final fight of his contract. <laughs> so here we go. Final fight of his contract. If he were to lose, he's a free agent 100%. He could do whatever he wants. He can call Tyson Fury right away and say, let's do that match. But now consider the ramifications if he loses. If he loses, he loses his title, number one, okay? If he loses, he loses all that momentum. So Tyson Fury's gonna be like, well, yeah, dude, but like you lost that fight, so your market value just went flying down. And I'm not really thinking this fight's gonna be as big as we would have had it if you had won that fight and you know kept your crown. This idea that he walks away from the contract with a loss and just like up and goes a different promotion, like goes to Bellator or goes to PFL. I mean, he could go to PFL, right? And theoretically do what Kayla Harrison's doing and go like year to year winning, winning his like, you know, one or $2 million prize for winning that, you know, division. It just seems like, like there's a lot of tension there right now between Ngannou and specifically Dana White and the UFC. You've seen it go back and forth. I don't know how it plays out. That negative energy, I, I believe, affects him one of two ways. And it's you know, not rocket science here. Either it's a distraction for Ninganu, it becomes a factor, it's in his head, it's affected his training, and it's going to be negative and pull him, pull him down. Or the flip side is he comes out here like, I'm going to prove to all you guys I am the champion. Unified, undisputed, no interims, no nothing else, I'm the guy. It should be noted if he wins this match and retains his title, there's a clause in his contract that says he immediately 
becomes an extended fighter under the contract of UFC. So his contract then is not over. If that makes any sense to you. So if he loses his contract with the UFC, is completely over. It's his last fight in his contract. He's done. Free bird. He's gone. If he wins, he would be under contract. He'd have to still be fighting under UFC. Now, could he just say, I'm not fighting anymore? I retire and do like what Khabib did? Yes, but I believe then under his contract, like sort of a non-compete, he would not be able to go and like do a boxing match or do like fight for Bellator. He would literally be precluded from doing any of that. He still would owe a cut or have to get a buyout from another promotion there because he would be under contract with the UFC. So that was a mouthful. Let's talk here about Cyril Gaon. He grew up playing soccer and basketball. His birth name is Bon Gammon Gagne. Not sure why he doesn't go by Bon Gammon. Not that Cyril sounds bad, but anyway, that's his birth name. He began Muay Thai as his first love for mixed martial arts, and so he's got a phenomenal kickboxing stance, very athletic, especially for a guy six foot four and a heavyweight. 13-0 kickboxing record with nine KOs. Two-time winner of performance of the night from the UFC in his fight versus Mays and his fight versus Lewis. He's averaging two and a half rounds for his distance for fights that he wins. I thought that was interesting. For a heavyweight, he's averaging two and a half rounds per fight he wins. Again, he's 10-0. You know, he's definitely taking his time in there. And that's a unique quality for a young guy, young heavyweight. Some of these guys come in there just like, oh, 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 just trying to like, you know, kill you with one big shot. Not him. Patience is one of his virtues, okay? Especially for a young fighter. He went pro 2018, only been a pro for three years compared to Ningano, who's been a pro for nine years. And like for Ningano, this is Ningano 2.0. That is one chink in the armor here for Cyril Gaon. He has not lost yet. And most people will tell you that until you've had a loss, right, in this in this game of mixed martial arts, you haven't really then grown as an athlete. There's no such thing as just running the, the gamut and going undefeated. Yes, it's happened. Of course, we know of Khabib. But reality is that most careers are ups and downs, okay? And those downs are when you sometimes come up short, you lose a fight. How do you respond? Do you get better? Do you improve? Cyril Gaon will lose at some point. You know what I mean? And it could be this fight here, and maybe it's not this fight. But at some point, he comes up short. At some point, maybe decision or gets knocked out, especially if it, as a heavyweight. So volatile. The biggest wins of his career for Cyril Gaon. He beat Derek Lewis by KO 2021. He beat Jarzinho Rosenstrike by decision 2021. And then Alexander Volkov also by decision in 2021. The positives I like about Cyril Gaon, there's a lot of them. He's undefeated, obviously. Very athletic, extremely athletic, especially for the heavyweight division. Not that Ningano is not athletic too, because these guys are both like six foot four. These guys could be like tight ends in the NFL, probably could have played tight end at a top level college if they just really applied themselves in late high school, just playing football. They're just so athletic and so big and very strong. He's an active heavyweight, averaging 3.3 fights per year. He fought three times in 2021, one time, one time in 2020. He had four cancellations in 2020, mind you. So he, does, he still fought once in 2020, but he had four cancellations. Then he also fought four times in 2019. A lot of activity for a heavyweight, again, lends towards that athleticism. Volume striking is one of his best traits. So again, not only just athletic, he's got good cardio. The kicking game is obviously there, the Muay Thai background, kickboxing background. So he'll do some body kicks, some leg kicks. If you like to see good technical striking, this is a guy who will, who will show out. He's got more technical striking than his opponent. I think it's obvious that Nganu has maybe an edge in the power area. And so when you see Nganu land a punch, it's like, it would be like the strength of a freaking, like a wild animal punching you or kicking you, like a hyena or something kicking you. Oh, well, hyena is a bad, a donkey, a, a horse kicking you in the chest. That power dynamic is going to be on the edge there for Ninganu. When it comes to the to the technique, though, the striking, the volume, who's landing more punches, who's landing the crisper exchanges, that's going to be in the side of Cyril Gaon. And you see that in their prior film. Could uh, Francis have gotten better and sharper when he's striking? 
Yeah, but that doesn't really, that's not part of who he is. He is a heavyweight champion with knockout power. That's always what he's going to be. That doesn't, doesn't mean he, can get, he can't get somewhat better, a little more technical, but he'll never be as technical here as Cyril Gaon. The coaching advantage, I mentioned it before. I want to, again, double down on this. The head coach for Cyril Gaon is the former head coach for Francis Ngannou. That means that, you know, Lopez knows all the ins and outs of Ngannou. He trained him. He knows him. He helped him. Heck, he put the guy in the gym off the streets. Okay, so and the relationship's not bad from what I've heard. Actually, it's not bad. He left and went to Las Vegas to, you know, extreme couture just to change things up and, you know, broaden his, you know, understanding of mixed martial arts and whatever. Else. But there is a strategic advantage there because Coach Lopez and even Gon, who used to spar with Ngano there in France, they know him well. Okay, now the kicking is going to also be a significant advantage for Cyril Gon. There is no kicking game for Ngano. He doesn't do any kicking for for Cyril Gon. There will be kicking. It's powerful. It's accurate. Could it end the fight? I don't see him ending the fight with a kick, more of a punch, or maybe wearing out Ninganu. I think the most likely path to victory, again, for Cyril Ghan is going to be some kind of late wearing out Ninganu for round four, round five, just from cardio or getting a win by a decision. Solid finish rate here for Cyril Ghan. He's finished seven of his 10 wins, so 70% finish rate. Now, my concerns, here's my only few concerns with Cyril Ghan. I don't have many. He's never lost a fight, so we just don't know yet. Has he really been pressed? Has he really been in trouble? I haven't seen him in trouble. I haven't seen him chin-checked. He takes some good punches, avoids punches, really good defense, good head movement. Again, just so athletic. He does stand tall, though. Like, it seems to me like he's open for a counterpunch. Ninganu, they both have the same reach, but, like, Ninganu has very long, powerful arms, you know, for heavyweight. At some point, could he just clip that chin? I mean, I if Gagne gets knocked out in this fight, no one's going to be like, oh, he sucks. He doesn't have a chin. Like, no, Francis Ngannou's got that weapon, man. He has that special tool, that gift, that knockout power. We watched the following films to break down this, this fight. We watched Ngannou versus Miocic, Ngannou versus Rosenstrike, Ngannou versus Lewis, Gagne versus Volkov, Gagne versus Lewis, and Gagne versus Rosenstrike. Those six links in those uh, six films, those links are in the description. You can watch those films on your own. I think it'll lend you to the same direction that I'm concluding, which is, yeah, Gagne is the more technical fighter. Yeah, he probably wins at, what, three out of five times. He probably is the one who wins, and he's more technical. If it was a one-round fight, I'm on all on the side of Gagne. He's, he's patient. He's technical. He moves his feet. He'll get through round one. No problem, right? But here's the thing. There's that, that butt factor. The butt factor is that Francis Ngannou has the power. I got the power. Like that song back in what, the 80s and 90s. It's getting, it's getting. Oh my God, I'm dating myself. Anyway, looking at the two fighters side by side, my last few comparisons, experience-wise, I've been edged to Ngannou. He's fought a few more fights. He is the actual title holder. IQ-wise, I also give a slight edge to Ngannou. I believe he has fought slightly better competition. Obviously, people like Stipe Miocic. Cardio-wise, I want to say Gan is going to have a better cardio gas tank. It's going to look nicer in round four, round five. Look, when fighters get when fighters get tired, I mean, technique is the first thing that starts to go. You know what I mean? It happens to all fighters. But the ones who have very, very good technique in the case of Gon, he you're not going to find him throwing looping big punches and getting off balance. That would be um, on the side of Cyril, of Francis Ngannou. That might be him. So boxing-wise, technique-wise, cardio-wise, I do give an advantage there to Cyril Gon. Finishing-wise, both top-notch level finishers. Again, 70% finish rate there for Gon, but I think Ngannou has the slight edge. I give him one of the top ratings you could give a fighter here for finishing rating, and obviously 16 wins, all 16 by some kind of finish, whether it's submission or KO. Grappling-wise, eh, I think we're equal there. Both guys can do enough to stay in their feet. I don't imagine the fight gets to the ground. If it does, I think it's been a slippage, some kind of awkward moment. Now, could Ngannou get on his back in round four, round five, or late in the fight, or late in a round, be tired, and Gan is on top and getting some position control? It's possible. 
God, God's patience, his IQ, his understanding, the way he carries himself, it lends to that of like a guy who would be a veteran. You don't see that often. Okay, so this is another factor. I understand why he's minus 130. I get it. Plus 110 for Nagano. It's more or less a pick him. I would have Nagano as a slight favorite in my book, my personal book, because he is the technical title holder, which by the way, he's the title holder because he won it over Stevie Miocic. Fact, punto. That's it, right? Then the UFC, again, here's where it comes in, like this bad blood between the UFC and Ngannou, like behind his back, creating this interim title bout for Gagne and someone else. And then Gagne wins. You're like, oh, you're the title holder too. It's going to be a silver looking belt. It's not going to be gold color. It's silver. Like you're the title holder too. And it's like, what are we doing now? Are we doing that International Boxing Federation stuff with like three different organizations, four or five, six, 25 different organizations with different belts? Like I would imagine the UFC would be focused on just having one title holder per division with the one belt, but they did this. It's a marketing ploy, obviously. It's working out great for them because they're both now to beat. And I, what, what happens now? When Nagano wins, does he get the interim belt and does he carry two belts? I, whatever. I don't know. I like Nagano at some point within five, five rounds. That's the thing. For Ganya, he has to survive five rounds and not get hit. I think at some point, Nagano donkey kicks him. <laughs> Hits him with something that's animalistic-like. And at that point, we're going to find out one or two things. Can Ganya take a punch? And if he can, he goes on to victory here. Or two, is Ganya just a man like everyone else? And when that man gets hit by that donkey kick, is he going to take him down? So I like Ninganu here over the course of five rounds. I think he loses rounds one, two, maybe. Doesn't win on the scorecards. That has less volume, but he's looking for that one dagger, that one shot. And at some point, he gets it. You find out what Gan's about. I think Ngannou's going to be, and still, champion in the heavyweight division. brings us to the end of the show. I'm going to give you a quick summary of our picks to win, starting with the top. We like Francis Ngannou in the main event, Brandon Moreno, Cody Stamen, Michelle Pereira, Rodolfo Vieira, Trevin Giles, Gennaro Valdez, Tony Gravely, Kay Hansen, Ronnie Barcelos, Vanessa Demopoulos, Leah Taporia, and Jack Della Maddalena in his first UFC fight. Those are our favorite picks to win. Thank you for joining us. Please like and subscribe if you haven't already. And if you don't know, please take advantage of the free video library. If you look at the description, you're going to find a bunch of links for prior fights. If you're looking for a more in-depth library, take a look at the individual fight films that we put them up separately. The reason why, because we can't put as much text in the description for our full card breakdown, so we have to cut out some of the links. Good luck with this card, guys. Thank you again for joining us. Peace.